When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of Down the Pub. Uh, they get longer every week and they get more popular every week. So go figure because we talk less and less sense every time. Um, <laughs> Today, I thought it'd be really funny because everything we've done so far just revolves around blokes a bit too much. Um, and it's been like a token woman chucked in that hasn't been taken seriously. So tonight, here come the girls, man. Be afraid, Johnny and Holmes. Be afraid because there is a mass amount of estrogen in this virtual room today. Uh, we have, um, like, well, there are two Americans coming, including one token guy, but they're not here yet. So we're just going to give them loads of crap if they turn up and start mentioning things like World War Two. Um, but there is an American hit that is here on time. Um, Elena Yanaga, uh, medieval and sex guru, blogger extraordinaire, author of upcoming book, The Middle Ages, A Graphic History. Uh, you're going to be hearing a lot more from her tomorrow because she's done her own Q&A. But hey, Elena. Hey, I can't believe I didn't scare you off on the first one. So glad to be back. No, it's awesome. I cannot wait for all of the bloke-orientated military war guys to log on tomorrow to listen to your Q&A and start getting an <laughs> actual academic lecture on medieval strap-ons. It's going to be epic. Um, because they, know, yeah. it's, uh... oh, Spoiler alert, but they had strap-ons. <laughs> yeah. oh, so. You know, as you do, as you yeah. do. Yeah, no, brilliant. So, and to be fair, we only gave you the questions that the people asked. It was very democratic and they did ask you about kink and strap-ons and so you answered them. Uh, we also have with us Emma Southern, uh, who's just turning into a regular now, but she's so awesome uh, that we had to have her back. Ancient historian, author on a one-woman, quite successful so far mission to make the whole world hate you, <laughs> Lisa. Um, I'm going to quote her CV again because uh, earlier on, a couple of weeks ago, she said, my professional historianing is mostly cackling at weirdos and oddballs from the past and the rest is spelling people's names wrong. I think every historian <laughs> can uh, empathise with that. By it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Emma. Hello. Do you know Eleanor already? Um, vaguely from Twitter, I follow Eleanor on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're uh, definitely yeah. a Twitter. Yeah. So, you know, she, oh, she's seen my memes. Act like you have seen my memes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're so coming over from Belfast when this over and we're all I going am. down the pub. I am, we're going to go for yeah. a yeah. mm-hmm. Brilliant. <laughs> <clears throat> we also have with us Claire Miles, newcomer today, history blogger and wait for it, Alina proud welsh woman it's my mission in life to bring as many welsh accents onto this podcast just to screw with your blonde head as i possibly Thanks can yeah uh, she doesn't sound that well she sounds less welsh than yoan but she's actually i'm going to get her later on to teach you how to say something in welsh hey claire what's with our pal <laughs> <laughs> oh i could say i wish we had the video for you done so i could see the fear on her face uh she's totally petrified 
uh, our judges as ever. Oh, yeah, Alina's here as well, but everybody knows that. Hey, Alina. Hello. You're you arguing for something. So I always forget you. I know. It's because I'm sick of the sight of you, if I'm honest. Oh, thank you. I love them too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, this is what, like, what are we on now? Day 34, 35, something like that? Probably spoke to you once every six months before a month ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And now we're literally wrapped around each other's fingers. Yeah, and you are coming to this pub thing as well when this lockdown lifts. Get on a plane. Yeah, Yeah, I will be jumping on that plane and straight over. So don't you worry your pretty little head. (sighs) I'll try. Anyway, our judges tonight, we have uh, the not-so-honourable Andrew Holmes. You right, Holmes? Yeah, not too bad. Sorry, I'm slightly distracted by this talk of medieval strap-ons, to be honest. I knew you'd still be fixated on that. Um, I mean, a man after my own heart, you know. Uh, (laughs) I've won the moral victory already, so. I'm just wondering about the cloth used to sort of fix it. I'm slightly worried it'd rub, but there we go. It's leather, so, you know, there you go. Hmm. Any more questions about the strap-ons, Holmes? No, I'm going to have to listen for tomorrow then, aren't I? (laughs) Do you know, now we've said that, um, this down the pub is getting bizarrely more and more popular the longer and the more rambling it gets every week uh everyone's going to hear that and i feel our downloads are going to go through the roof tomorrow um, <laughs> and brilliantly we didn't plan it this way eleanor but that's right at the end so they've all got to listen to the rest of the podcast oh yeah that's <laughs> right I, I, you know you got to make them work for it got to make yeah, them work for the definitely they're going to have to sit through all of the economic uh female options and a bit of warlording before they get to the strap-ons and the dildos there were dildos as well right yeah, there's also dildos. Yeah, you know, it's just that the strap-ons we get a little bit more love because it's just fun to talk about strap-ons. What can I say? Yeah, when is it ever not fun to talk about strap-ons? Yeah. yeah. Um. Right. Okay. Johnny dies here as well after he chickened out and ran away from Clive last year. Hey, Johnny. <laughs> last week. Good evening. Yeah. Did you really run away from Clive because you were scared of him? No, no. To work tedium, unfortunately, took over. But uh, back with a bang. Adulting. Week, hopefully. You were adulting. Yeah, proper proper work and stuff. Very dull. Strike one for you. Right, let's get started in the hope that everybody else will turn up at some point. And if not, we'll just talk about more random sex objects from the medieval period. Uh, But until then, who shall we start with? So we're going to argue today for the biggest badass, female badass in history. Um, So no men allowed. It's all about the girls tonight. Uh, it's almost well, it is at the moment. All girls doing the arguing. Let's start with Claire um, <clears throat> because I really like her choice. And we always start at the the oldest and work our way up. So let's start with one of the more modern ones today. Claire, who have you gone for and why? Right today, I'm going to be talking about Lady Rhonda, aka Margaret Haig Mackworth. She's, well, I'm quite lucky in that Welsh history has produced loads of amazing, wonderful females to talk about. But this lady, she is without doubt the most prominent Welsh woman in the 20th century. And as well as a massive list of achievements, she spent her life championing women and women's equality. She was a suffragette, an international industrialist. She organised women's labour during World War One. She um, she established one of the most influential weekly periodicals of the interwar period. And to top of that, she even survived a bloody torpedo. Oh, good on her. Oh, oh yeah. tell us okay. more. Intrigued. <laughs> yeah, so Lady, uh, Lady Rob is probably most well known for being a very active suffragette. And she came from a long line of suffragettes and suffragists. So, so it's kind of only natural that she went into the family business. 
and she she was really committed to the cause from the start. Um, so in 1908, she joined the Women's Social and Political Union, and she she took the campaign for women's suffrage across South Wales. And she was involved in protest, protest marches with the Pankhurst. She um, gained a bit of notoriety after jumping onto um, Prime Minister's the Prime Minister's car in 1910 on his way to St Andrews. Um, but she's probably most famous because um, in June of 1913, she tried to bomb a Royal Mail post box. Um, she was using a chemical bomb. Um, it was on a road in Newport. She got caught. And obviously she was taken to court um, as a trial. She refused to pay the £10 fine and she ended up going to, to jail. Um, when in jail, she went on hunger strike and she was released after six day and cat and mouse act. Um, and, um, yeah, that's probably what she's most famously known for. Um, but literally the list of things she achieved in her life, it, it goes on and on and on. Um, in 1915, that's when she had her near death experience. So she was actually on the RMS, uh, Lusitania when it was coming back from New York in May 1915. And it was torpedoed just off the southwest coast of Ireland. And we all know that the sinking of the Lusitania was a, was a massive, massive disaster. Um, her father was on the boat, and so was the secretary. They, they made it into a lifeboat. But Margaret was actually initially, she was still on deck when the ship was going down. And she was sucked down with the ship. And somehow she managed to make it back into the surface. Get, find, find a raft to, to float on, aka, you know, a bit like, a bit like Rose and Jack in Titanic. Imagine that situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when they found her, they found her a couple of hours later and they actually thought she was dead. They put her body on the boat and they left it. They actually thought she was dead until somebody realized, oh no, this lady's still breathing. And once, and after that, she literally threw herself into life. She threw herself into war work and she rose to the cane the chief controller of women's recruitment within the Ministry of National Service by 1918. So she was responsible for all of the women's recruitment across Britain, making sure that women volunteers went into land army roles, clerks roles, that sort of thing. Um, as you can imagine, she was extremely busy. Um, but at the same time, she was also running an international business empire. Um, her father had been a major industrialist, but he went into public service as well. He was actually food controller during World War One, and um, basically the job killed him and sent him to an early grave, unfortunately. So she ended up managing this massive empire across the globe of coal companies, steel companies, newspapers. Um, and she was very much a woman in a man's world. Um, War, it made, it made men more accepting of women in business, but she was still severely disadvantaged. Um, she was a very much a female entrepreneur in an overwhelmingly masculine environment. Um, so by 1919, she was sitting on the boards of 33 companies. She chaired seven of them. In the 1920s, she held more directorships than any other woman in the UK. And in 1926, she was elected as the Institute of Directors' first female president. And to this day, she's still the only female to have ever held that post. She was voted in unanimously. She held the post for 10 years. And the New York Tribune called her the foremost woman of business in the British Empire. 
she she was rocking it. She was busting it on all fronts. She's absolutely incredible. This, I'm not, I'm not being funny. This is just the start of it. <laughs> this is just why so I chose this lady. Like she literally threw herself into all aspects of public life. And the best thing about it is she she didn't just do it for herself. She, at the foremost of her mind, every time it was advancing the cause of women. She wanted other people to have the same success and the same opportunities as her. So. She founded Women's Industrial League, which kind of like sought equal training and employment opportunities for women in industry. Um, she created net, a network organisation for British businesswomen. She was one of the very first members of the London Chamber of Commerce. Uh, she she was like an advocate for others, as and she really wanted others to um to to, to share in in, what, in her success. Really, um, in terms of a long term legacy. What I've mentioned so far, all amazing stuff, but in terms of a long-term legacy, Lady Rhonda is seen as one of the main reasons why Lady Peeresses sit in the House of Lords. Um, so she inherited her father's title when he passed away in 1918, and she inherited that by special remainder, and pretty soon after, she started petitioning the King to receive... Um, to receive a writ summons to Parliament like the other peers of the realm, and she cited the Sex Disqualification Removal Act of 1919. Um, initially, she was accepted, but then the Lord Chancellor at the time <laughs> basically did everything in his power to make sure that the, 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 the ladies didn't go to the House of Lords. Um, they they kind of um, they changed the membership of the Committee of Privileges. He made himself chair of the committee. And eventually her, her request was rejected. And she spent 40 years, most of her life, fighting to assert her right through various cases. And unfortunately, she, she passed away in 1958. And less than a month later, women entered the Lords for the first time, which is kind of bittersweet in a way. Um, so she's, she's kind of widely acknowledged as the lady that helped bring that change about. The test case she bought was seminal and her portrait, ironically, now hangs in the middle um, of the peers' dining room in Parliament. Kind of like a belated recognition of, of what she did and her achievements and the role she played. And, of course, if that wasn't going to keep you busy enough, um, she also had a bit of a passion project on the side, a bit of a baby. Um, she set up, she founded uh, Time and Tide, which was a leading political and cultural review, um, a weekly periodical um, of the interwar period that was that was very, very distinctive. It, um, it was run by an all-female board of amazing female businesswomen and thinkers. Um, it was very much, the focus of the magazine was very much women's rights, but at the same time it didn't alienate men. Um, it was one of the first periodicals in the UK to publish the work of black writers and it also featured original work by like really, really big names now. Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, George Bernard Shaw, G.H. Lawrence, they were all friends of Margaret. And it's quite a nice contrast in her life this, of this kind of like Chelsea bohemian type literary artistic set and then with this badass businesswoman 
who who who's winning at things. Um, so yeah, that's that's a very very quick overview of Margaret's life. And it, like I said, it's really it's really kind of like a highlight reel because she got involved in so many aspects of public life. It, 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 it's astonishing. And the reason I chose it, like I said, is because she spent her life advancing the cause of women politically, socially, culturally, and in the sphere of business. And I, I just really couldn't think of a more wonderful and worthy Welsh woman to talk about today. Um, well done, considering I chucked you in first as well, and you're the only one that's not been on the podcast so far. That was amazing. I have to say, though, and I know this makes me horribly shallow, I really liked her till you got halfway through that, and then I started thinking, she's just making me look bad now. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel utterly fucking pointless now, overachieving cow. <laughs> Is anyone else agreeing with me? Were you like, all right, all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. We get it. You're great. (laughs) No, I I do agree with you, Claire. Um, You've gone all out. I know you were determined that your uh, person was going to be Welsh um, and you have brought um, a really serious candidate to the table, I feel, um, in the context of her era. Johnny, any questions? Do you know what? I'm just going to say before you start that usually oh. these two do loads of research, right? And they look up who's going to be argued and they, uh, they get really into it. They've been making pissy jokes about who's going to argue for Beyonce and whether or not if it's a tie, we're going to uh, have an ironing contest. Um, and they haven't actually done that much prep. So feel free to give them as much as you want. Johnny, well, any been... questions? Um, yeah, quite a few actually. Um, I mean, that's, um, and, and listen, apologies. We, we, we have obviously, Andrew and I have obviously formed a mammal tonight, which is probably inappropriate, <laughs> but um, that's, that's where we are. Um, I mean, that's, that's quite a remarkable life well lived. Um, and as you, as you pointed out, just the, the spectrum of, of her achievements is, is really quite incredible. And a shame to say, never ever heard of her until you mentioned her. Um, so that's kind of, um, Probably indicative, I expect, if you went out and talked to the wider world, I suspect an awful lot of people wouldn't know know who she was. Um, I'm sort of intrigued about her, her background in terms of her parents. I, mean, I read very briefly that her her mother was obviously obviously a feminist, but to, to be a feminist, you know, from probably sort of the, the 1870s, that's probably fairly subversive. So I'm intrigued to know what you know about her. Yes, well, I'm quite lucky. One of the reasons I love Lady Rhonda so much is that her um, her maternal grandparents actually lived about 20 miles away from me. Where I live in the middle of Wales, 20 miles away, is nothing at all, really. <laughs> yeah. Can I just say as well that you did absolutely nothing for Alina's absolute petrified terror of Welsh people when you started talking about bombs in post boxes? <laughs> Definitely not going to go there now. But continue, anyway. Yeah, so... um. So her parents, her father was um, uh, David Alfred Thomas, and his, his family is very much kind of landed gentry background, made their fortunes in um, in coal mining. It's, if you if you were to study coal mining and the history of coal mining, if, if you're that way inclined, he kind of um, he's kind of notable because he um, he kind of modernised management of the coal industry. He owned several, he owned quite a lot of collieries across the South Wales coal fields. And, but he was pretty much the first person to kind of manage separate collieries as one unit and make efficiencies that way. That was kind of like his noticeable legacy in the in the, in the coal mining world. Um, he was an MP for 22 years, a Privy Councillor, 
president of the local government board. And quite frankly, I think the, the, the only reason that we don't talk about him as much as we do the other notable Welsh um, uh, politician of the area, of the era, David Lloyd George. Also it, known it, as Satan's Because he died during the war. And um, in some ways, I think there was only room for one major Welsh politician. The but king the, liked Lord Rhonda, though. He couldn't stand Lloyd George. Yeah, the king liked Lord Rhonda, and um, he was kind enough to say to him, like, you know, when I give you this title, make you Viscount Rhonda, you, you, you can pass it on to your to your daughter. Um her mother, Sybil, Sybil Margaret, she was actually a member of the Hague family. So Hague, her um, her grandfather was first cousin to Field Marshal Hague. So her grandfather came from the side of the money that had all the whiskey money then. Yes. Yeah, because yes. Hague. So it was a, it was a very very interesting family. There was loads and loads of cousins, and um, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember two two of um, the aunts. Um, they were in. Um, they were involved in um, the Black Black Friday Parliament Square, the situation where those those of suffragettes kind of like marched on Parliament, and they were kind of like um, brutal, kind of brutally forced back by the police, and some of them were, were actually were actually physically physically assaulted. Um, so she had a lot of strong female role models in that regard. There's this great story of. Um, of uh, Margaret going to a town in the valleys, trying to rouse support for the cause, and being met by a group of anti-suffrage um, anti-suffrage protesters, and things got a bit nasty. Things being thrown, they're trying to grab her and tear her clothes. And there's this story of her and her friends running down the street away from this angry mob, and her mum comes around the corner in a chauffeur-driven car with a local police. <laughs> as only an aristocratic uh deck could do i love it no, oh, have you got any questions johnny any more no i it's just i mean to hear a little bit more about the family to, to stand out as, as probably the highest achiever in a family like that is, is really quite some going so yeah. no it's fantastic thank you Holmes? i've got a couple um <laughs> She sounds like a, sounds like an amazing character. What, why, why haven't we heard more about her? And I, I don't mean that in a belittling way. Is it, you know, we've all heard of the, the, uh, the Pankhurst, for example, and the suffragette side of things. But how come we've not heard more about her? Is it because she's Welsh and has a very Anglo-centric approach to this sort of thing? Or I think that's partly it. Like I said with David Lloyd George. I think there was only room for one Welsh politician at this time. And likewise, there was only room for one Welsh politician's daughter, and that would have been Megan Lloyd George. Um, yeah, I think I honestly think that's the main reason. And it's kind of interesting to note, and I, I get really angry about this, about 10 or so years ago, they did a poll of the top 100 Welsh people of all time. Margaret came in 66. There, there was hardly, there's about 15 women on the list. Are there even 65 Welsh people to go above her? Exactly. <laughs> the top-ranking Welsh woman came in at number 10. Can you guess who that was? Oh, don't tell me it was like Catherine Jenkins or something. Close. It was Catherine Zeta-Jones. Oh, really? We cannot trust the British public with a vote. No, you can't. But then the British public were asked what they should name a battleship, and they unanimously voted for Boaty McBoatface. So. Well, the best thing the British public have ever done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they should. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing that they're blameless. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> let's not go to. Yeah. No, quite agreed. It is, I'm surprised we haven't heard more about her. And considering I like, I've mentioned her dad a couple of times in my own book and I still never heard of her. That's quite sad. So thank you for bringing her today, um, and telling us a bit more about her. And if if she doesn't win, I'm glad we've sort of done a little bit of justice to Welsh ladies today. Um, Emily has joined us from, uh, near Atlanta. Hey, Emily. Happy, happy, happy birthday for the, uh, two weeks ago because you are now 21. Yes, thank you so much. I, I love that cute drawing that, that you guys had done for me. That was so sweet, and you guys are amazing. Not so sweet is the fact that we intend to see uh, to do an experiment basically tonight and see actually how much of a lightweight you are and how drunk we can get you, because apparently, <coughs> well, as far as your dad is concerned, you've only had one drink so far. Oh, definitely. Well, actually, my siblings threw me um, a fake um, pub crawl throughout my house with all of the bars um, from my college town. They made signs and everything, and they had. <laughs> my brother was the bouncer. It was it was really cute. It was it was really fun. My dad uh, was another bouncer too. But um, yeah, I had a really good time. Um, he should be joining us in just a little bit. I'm gonna try not to get too bad though. I have uh, my final exams next week that I'm probably should study for a little bit tonight, but yeah, absolutely. Cause you are training time. to be a nurse. Uh, and so they probably need you quite badly right now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, actually uh, over here, they're laying off lots and lots of healthcare workers, which is very concerning, but um, there's no revenue from the elective surgeries right now. So uh. I thought my job was fine. I was laughing at my, all, all my economics and theater major friends. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's move on. Uh, I'm not going to chuck Emily straight in and be mean. Uh, let's go with Emma. Okay. Emma, you changed your mind. They all tell us who you were going to answer, <laughs> ask, argue so, for. I was going to do Fulvia, um, who is a Roman woman who had a lot of good husbands and she was uh, married to Mark Antony. Um, and she, um, ran a paramilitary and then um raised an army in order to defend Mark Antony. Um but I was looking at her and you can't really think about Fulvia without thinking about the woman that um, Mark Antony married after her, which is Octavia Minor. Um and the more I thought about it, the more I thought that Octavia would be more interesting to do. Um so I'm going with Octavia Minor. Because... What's, um, what's funny though is that the 85% of time that the guy spent looking at Beyonce's career, um, <laughs> but then the last 15% of their time they should have been researching for this, they spent giggling at Fulvia's name. And now I've <laughs> taken that away from them. So yeah. it's a win-win. I mean, you say that, but I did, she was the first woman depicted on a coin, wasn't she? She was the first non-mythological woman depicted on a Roman coin. Um, I've so, got no more questions for the rest of the night. Which is quite good. It doesn't have her name on it, though, uh, which is disappointing. She also um, got... the re- One of the main reasons I was going to do it is because Augustus wrote a really rude poem about her, and I find the poem really amusing. So oh, tell us the poem anyway, then. Um, I'm going to have to find it now. Hang on. Uh, The poem is um, recorded like 200 years later by... um, by Marshall, who writes it. I'm going to slightly... I'm going to do a better translation than the one that I've got here because it's a boring translation. But basically, Fulvia raised an army and then... um, uh, 
kind of took over a small town in Italy um, in while Antony and Augustus were in the middle of their civil war in order to kind of annoy Augustus, basically. And so uh, Augustus wrote this poem about her in which he says, because Antony Foxglafria Fulvia has arranged this punishment for me that I have to fuck her as well. I fuck Fulvia. If Manius begged me to bugger him, would I do it? Not if I were sane. Either fuck or fight, she says to me. Doesn't she know that my prick is dearer to me than life itself? So let the trumpets blare. That sounds easy. We're going to need to be pin protected for this week. (laughs) (laughs) That's the the 18 rating sorted out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, uh, so I was going to go with that. But then I was thinking that Octavia is more interesting because although Fulvia is a rebellious woman and rebellion is the easiest way to see agency and therefore to define badassery, um, Mm. that one can also be a badass woman within the structures of the society that they live um, by kind of surviving within it even when it really fucking sucks. Um, See that? That was you um, sort of rescuing this podcast from the gutter with yeah. some academic big words. Thank you. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, um, and I do think that there is such a... a, a it's so easy to see rebellion and to see women who who break the rules and then get told off for it as being the only badass women and the only way that people can be badass. And quite often breaking the rules means doing manly things like raising an army. Um, but womanly things can be badass too. So um, I went with Octavia because she basically obeys all the rules um, and does the best she can to have a life that works and is really a kind of, it seems to be genuinely a good person. Um, who tries to make life better for the people around her. Um, she is the full sister of uh, Octavian, Augustus, um, and is therefore also the grand uh, niece of Julius Caesar. Um, so when her brother decides to become a 19-year-old warlord um, and go marching around, she is kind of thrown into the mix in a way that she never really expected. She is married at 14 years old um, to a guy called Marcellus, uh, who is... A kind of great consul um, and seemingly a quite a good man um, they love each other very much they have a marriage that is a, a great love marriage and when some when Julius Caesar tries to persuade her to divorce her husband so that he can marry her to Pompey she refuses because she loves her husband um, and so she maintains their marriage until she is 29 when he dies um and she is widowed for the first time she has three children with him um all of them have the same freaking name because the romans love to have the same freaking name um they, just... they all julia's as well like on your individual podcast which is going out soon. <laughs> um they're not they're all called claudia because they're all named after uh the father so um ah. you've got claudia marcella major claudia marcella minor and marcus claudius marcellus it's not very imaginative is it it's not she then uh it's literally six months after her husband who she has been with for 15 years um who she loves with her life um literally six months after she is married by the senate quote unquote uh which means octavian to mark antony um mark antony is already causing problems um and has been a dickhead um and his previous wife fulvia had just died after and of a broken heart basically after antony told her off for um raising an army um and she is married to octavian and she does her best to make this work she knows that this marriage is to bring the two of them together because they have been at low-key war with one another um, and she's trying to hold it together um she is 
a good wife to Antony and a good sister to Octavian and therefore a good person for the empire. She travels to Antony and travels with him, um, despite not particularly liking him very much. Um, she has two children with her. Do you want to guess their names? Claudia and Claudia. No, because this time they're named after their father. No, so no. they're called Antonia and Antonia. <laughs> I <laughs> think by this point they were like numbers four and five. She was just like, I'll oh, just call it what you want. Just give it yeah. <laughs> So she's got two Claudias, a Claudius and two Antonias. Um, they are both born in the East. Um, this whole time Antony is fucking around with her. Um, and then he gets on with Cleopatra. Um, they've been going on with Cleopatra. She's had two children with Cleopatra during this time. Um, and she has, but she is still there between her brother and her husband trying to keep them both in a position where there's not going to be a war that breaks out. Um, she is particularly famous, like her biggest kind of quote unquote public work is that she holds a, a kind of convention, um, a peace summit um, in a place called Tarentum uh, where Antony and Augustus get together in the same room and agree that they will support one another and give each other funds for their kind of respective wars that they're marching um he then Anthony then writes her a letter and says you know what fuck off um (laughs) basically he's horrible to her he says I don't want this anymore he has this disastrous campaign um he decides that Cleopatra is all he wants um he runs off to her and then a year later kills himself um after the battle of Actium October I can't be sorry I'm like oh well yeah, I mean, you can't be sorry. And I'm sure that a part of her was grateful and she could have then got out and been happy. But she's only like 37 at this point, um, which is the same age as I am. It's not that old. Um, but she's got five children um, to be raising who are not that old either. And she has to kind of arrange marriages for them and everything. But on top of that, she also takes in Antony's children that he had with Fulvia and the children that he had with Cleopatra. So he, she takes in a further five children um, and then dedicates her life to raising these children to have good, solid educations, good, solid marriages. She prepares them to have a good life um, that is worthy of them as aristocratic young men and women. Um, and... More than anything, I think that taking in the children that your husband had, regardless of how he felt with her, about him, with the woman that he left you for, is like an unbelievable badassery. I might um, do it if I was going to make them my slaves. But, yeah, <laughs> she that... is genuinely good to them. Like Cleopatra Selene gets a good marriage to a like an Eastern king. Alexander Helios gets like a good wife and a career. Like she is genuinely, um, like raises them well and really dedicates herself to making sure that they live a good life um and she lives this kind of life being octavian's representative of goodness essentially um in rome until 23 bc when she's in that kind of her mid 40s when her oldest son dies very suddenly of illness um, and her children have become her life and this just completely floors her basically um she cannot really cope that well with losing her child and she retires from public life and lives a happy 10 years um being uh, a woman who did an awful lot for a very young woman and who um was used by men around her uh, to 
further their own personal interests from the age of 14 onwards. Um, and she dies at 58, um, getting a big public funeral. But all in all, I argue that she's a badass because she was kind of passed around and abused and she never rebelled against it. She just took it and tried to be the best person that she could be. I really like what you've done on a serious note. Not that anything is very serious <laughs> on this program, but you have actually done something different and you've picked someone who you're right, badass, you could just go for the biggest blood count. Um, yeah. But you've gone for someone who actually was a badass within the confines of a society that did everything to stop her being one. I really like that. Holmes, have you got any questions? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think first of all, we're quite, too quick to judge on her giving her kids exactly the same name because she must have spent <laughs> a fortune in buying birthday cards over the years. That's true. So <laughs> save a lot on that. And also, yeah. you don't have to do the thing where you like go through. I don't know if your parents do. My, my dad calls me by my sixteen-year-old sister's name all the time, even though I'm thirty-seven and she's sixteen. Um, <laughs> and at no point does anybody have to do that. Like you don't have to go through the roll call of names. You just call Claudia, and they're all going to come. <laughs> also, you just write Claudia on every Christmas present and chuck it under the tree as well. <laughs> and just let them fight it out. Exactly. That's a melee battle for him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel like she also gave really good presents. Like I think she's the kind of person who like wrote a really heartfelt Christmas card and like gave you a present that you just you mentioned like six months ago and completely forgot about and she remembered and got it for you. You want her to be your mum, don't you? A little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, my mum's pretty great. She'll listen to this because she listens to everything I do because she's wonderful. Hello, mum. <laughs> Hello, mum. My mum doesn't listen to shit. My mum listens to Sean Bean and Yo and Griffith and fuck all else. Thanks, mum. <laughs> so don't you wish Octavia would? If Octavia was your mum, Octavia would listen to it and then, like, text you and tell you the, her favourite bits. Or at least she'd pretend Absolutely. to listen to it. Yeah. yeah, she'd at least listen to the last five minutes and the middle five minutes and fake it. My mum can't even be fucked to do that. Uh, anyway, Holmes, have you got any questions? Not about my mum, but about oh, okay. Octavia. But, well, just the, the name thing is weird, and that my dad did the same. He always got, got me and my brother mixed up. And then I was like, when I'm when I'm a parent, I won't do that. And I've got one son and a cat, and I've been known to get <laughs> um, My partner sometimes calls me by our cat's name, so... <laughs> That's a, that is an unbridled compliment. It is, because right, the cat's right. very pretty, so. I just wondered in terms of whether there was any legacy as such. You mentioned that she devoted a lot of her later life to making sure her kids were married appropriately and were happy and I just wondered if there was like, you know, Queen Victoria made it, made out, made it so that a lot of her grandkids ended up being sort of, you know, married to heads of state across Europe around that time. I just wondered if there was anything similar that happened with her children. Um, not really. Marcellus was supposed to be the great legacy. Um because Which one? he <laughs> <laughs> Marcellus is her oldest son, so he is supposed to be the great legacy. And he was um Augustus's first pick to be the next emperor. So um one of the great jokes of Roman history is that every time Augustus picks somebody to be his heir, they almost immediately drop dead. Um and Marcellus is the first one in that where he um, he was supposed to be the great legacy. He was being trained up. He was in his early 20s when he died very suddenly of an illness. Um, but he was supposed to be the great legacy and the rest of them are girls. So they don't really get that kind of they get Antonia's are very important. They both have very important marriages and then they um their children, the Julio-Claudian 
um, family tree is a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> they've all got the same name. <laughs> yeah, but Antonia Minor is the mother of Claudius and Germanicus, um, who are, and then via that, um, she's also the grandmother of Caligula, um, and is, so you, they, they kind of do all work back to Octavia. There's one point when, um, Agrippina the Elder and Germanicus are both related to Antonia Minor via different directions and it's all kind of creepy and they're very incestuous and gross uh, so they are all very important all of her children but 50% because they're all married to their cousins Holmes, anything nothing, else? Nothing further from me Johnny? No, actually the, the, the question about the children was a relevant one which is the one I scribbled down but I'm sort of intrigued to know how she was viewed by her contemporaries um, in the sense that I mean, it, it seems, from what you've talked about in, in previous episodes and uh, what I've learned, is that Roman males, the higher they got, became dickheads in, in <laughs> quite, yeah. quite extreme ways. So it, it sounds like she she was sort of quite an effective counterbalance to dickheadry, basically. Um, I love that I'm, you've taught him that ever since yeah. this podcast started. It's an That's important great. thing to know. I'm very happy about that. Yeah, and uh, he's also yeah. inherited your uh, talent for making up words as well. <laughs> dickheading. I like it. Dickheadery. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm sort of intrigued to know, um, know how she was viewed at the time, what her contemporaries thought of it. Uh, she is one of those women where nobody has a bad word to say about her. Um, one okay. of the few that gets like people, even like Livia Augustus's wife, who is presented in a very similar way to in the propaganda to Octavia gets all the stuff about her being a murdering Harridan who, um, was secretly controlling everything behind the scenes because she tried to be too public. Um, but nobody ever, she, Octavia is, entirely confined herself to the private sphere um, and therefore did all of her badassery within the sphere of quote-unquote the women's place um, and she never tried to raise an army or speak politically or have anything to do with man's business because either she wasn't interested or she just was only interested in the things that she was interested in. Um, but and then so, in a way hmm. she still ended up bossing the line of succession for how long? She, for a very long time yeah. until Nero. Um, but I think that it's important to, because so much of what we define as badassery is the public sphere, the male sphere is this, um, things which are coded as masculine, but I think yeah. that you can be badass within the private sphere too. And the fact that everybody thought she was great is a good thing, really. I really like that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, Holmes, you just mentioned Queen Victoria. I'm utterly not arguing for her. I've just spent a week inside her head researching. Oh, with her diaries. Oh, my God. Her <laughs> and Edward VII between them. What with him and his bouts of syphilis or gonorrhea or whatever, and her and the worst parenting I have ever seen in any research I've ever done. Just writing to your kid and saying, you suck, like on a regular basis, and then complaining because they suck. Oh, but yeah, let's not nominate Queen Victoria for the most badass woman of all time. No. She doesn't deserve it. Um, that might be because I just downed a gin and tonic way too quickly that I went on that little rant and I I'm sure she had lots of good qualities too. Anyway, um, on that note, we're going to go and refill our drinks.
That, that was Ben Franklin's great great contribution to electricity. So Emily just got the talk. Yeah. For those of you that uh, weren't privy to our drinks break, John has arrived and promptly asked Eleanor about water-powered vibrators. Emily realized her dad knew what a vibrator was, <laughs> and all hell broke loose, basically. And I've now got beer coming down my nose. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's put let's give Emily something else to focus on. Uh, Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah, Dad's going to be paying for the therapy, but I think he's going to say it was worth it for that. That was funny. (laughs) Uh, Okay, right. Let's let's try and be a little bit professional um, for at least five minutes. So, if you listened to us way back when at the beginning, which feels like a year because that's how much we've put out, but actually it's only four weeks. Then episode two was John and Emily Jordan, who are father and daughter from Georgia, who um, have written a book called War Queen. So what they've done essentially is put together 13 badass women from history and talk about their leadership. So they were perfect to come on this show. Um, And this is actually because this lady came up um, in that episode. So if you want to go back and listen to episode two, you can hear about more people from their book in detail. But Emily, tell us who you're going to vote for as the most badass woman in history and why. So my vote, I was really thinking about this, and I was actually very inspired by Emma's talk about forgiveness with Octavia. Um, she was not a very forgiving woman. <laughs> so my vote goes to uh, Jinga of the Dongo region of Southwest Africa, which is essentially what we consider to be Angola now. Um, she lived in the early 1600s, pretty much just after the reign of Elizabeth Tudor. Um, but she's someone that I thought was really incredible because she didn't really let anything define her. And to me, you know, in modern day, we talk a lot about labels and things like that. And she's a really inspiring person to me because she did not let that ever hold her back or keep her from getting what she wanted. So diving in a little bit, um, she was the daughter of a, um, of the king of a tribe and she was, Excuse me, sorry. Um, as she was Emily, growing, how many drinks have you had so far? <laughs> oh, just this one. <laughs> She's okay. She just drank uh, two weeks ago. Yeah, my dad knows just one. Yeah, um, just one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so growing up, she was known to be the uh, mentally and, su- uh, and physically superior to her other siblings, just like I am to mine, right, Dad? Um, <laughs> but. <laughs> She was someone who deserved this position and, and knew that she wanted it, but it was pretty much given over to her brother. Um, and her life is kind of led by what I call mic drop moments. And there's a few really amazing that we touched on last time that I'll touch on again. Um, but anyway, so her brother was pretty much given charge once their father died um, of the kingdom of um, the Dongo region and the Mabundu people who worshipped their ancestors. And she knew she wanted this position, and her brother just hated her. It was a very much Lion King situation mm. where he had her. She was 35 years old, and he has her children murdered. He has her and her sisters sterilized in this freaky sterilization ritual. They were uh, they had boiling uh, herbs and oils poured all over their bellies, and as it turned out, that actually worked. And I, you know, as was said before, we don't know the science behind that, but. Um, she would never go on to have a child, which is also interesting because she was constantly surrounded by both male and female concubines um, throughout her entire life. 
Um, so coming around to the first, what I call mic drop moment is what we have called history's first red wedding. She had this huge revenge that she needed to get against her brother. And essentially she talked her brother and so viciously spread rumors about him and belittled him to essentially killing himself. But he left behind an heir that was the one little sticking point that she couldn't take the kingdom that she grew up her whole life knowing she deserved. So um, her brother had trusted his son to a tribe um, chief from another tribe and said, protect my son until he is of age to take charge. And all of a sudden, Jenga realized that she was completely enthralled in love with this tribe chief watching over her nephew. And she was a little suspicious, as he probably should have been. And on the day of their wedding, she slits the throat of the nephew and a, a couple other partygoers, throws the boy into the river, and um, essentially takes charge of the situation, which is just one really, really big moment for her. Um, and so another big leading to the next mic drop moment. Um, a lot of her life was spent fighting against the Portuguese. Um, the Portuguese conquistadors had come in to Luanda and were split, spreading their, quote, influence, meaning slaughtering, killing, um, and conquering everything in sight. Um, so she goes, she's sent over there to negotiate with the Portuguese. And walking into the room, there's really this big parade coming into town. My dad and I like to call it the Prince Ali scene from Aladdin. Big trumpet, <laughs> colorful. Um, she, first of all, is a spectacle to be seen because at the time the Portuguese believed in wearing bland, humble clothing. And she's out here, the fiercest fashionista in Africa and adorned with these beautiful feathers and um, bangles and jewelry. But she walks into the room and sees that there is not a chair for her. The natives are being forced to sit on the floor. And again, a, a defining moment of her life, she decides not to let herself have this label of native or beneath someone else. And she essentially snaps her finger and um, one of her servants goes down on hands and knees and is a human chair for her, which I think is so fabulous and dramatic and amazing. <laughs> and I want to do that in the pub. Johnny, next time I snap my fingers in the Charles Holden, if you could recreate that yeah, her, moment when you face-planted off of a picnic table in Tooting Market. Yeah, her, her siblings <laughs> didn't go for it either. Yeah, that's good. Really, 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 really Alex, I'm simply saying social distancing. <laughs> Can hide, hide behind that for now. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, anyway, so the meeting lasts several hours, by the way. I, this poor girl being her chair um, was probably very tired of, of this about 40-year-old woman sitting on her. Um, but she leaves the meeting on pretty good terms with the Portuguese. And I like to look at her journey in terms of her name. So she was born with the name Jinga of her Mabundu people. Um, which actually um, means to twist and turn because she was born with the cord wrapped around her neck and they thought that that made her special and that she would be unlock, unlike anyone else ever, which I think is incredible. But when she meets with the Portuguese and converses with them and, and decides to work with them, she takes on her second out of three names, which would be Ana de Sousa, named after um, the governor, Correa de Sousa. And um, that kind of was a bit of a personality change for her. And she really took it into, um, into the Catholic faith and didn't see it as mutually exclusive. She saw that her ancestor worshiping people could work together with the Catholics and bring in 
the missionaries and the ministers and the priests and to work together to strengthen her kingdom. Um, well, essentially, she was so well supported by so many different groups of people, the Portuguese eventually did not like that. They, they noticed that um, a lot of people were definitely going to her side a little bit more. Um, and so soon they were at war, which is the war queen part of her title. She spends um, pretty much the next few decades of her life with uh, fighting against the Portuguese, but she gets some really amazing more mic drop moments in there. Um, one of my favorites that my dad and I were talking about the other day is she is cornered in a fort um, just outside of her original kingdom. She's outside in the kingdom of Matamba and she's completely surrounded. She's probably not going to win this fight. And she wrote lots of letters of peace and about forgiveness, which is a little controversial to her warlike and ruthless methods. But one of her letters included to the governor um, requested a whole laundry list of just her favorite things, which I thought was amazingly outlandish to say, by the way, I know I'm cornered. Please do my shopping for me. And that list included stuff like hammocks, four rolls of red wool, a horse blanket, good wine. I don't know what she meant by that. Um, not the cheap shit. <laughs> no, not, not the Costco. Um, it goes on and on. Blue velvet. Um, I, I like this one. It says, uh, a broad brim hat, the one your honor wears, meaning his hat. She wanted hat. <laughs> um, and it just goes on and on and on. I, I wish I could read it all because it's hilarious to me. Um, that's another great moment. You know, she. What's the most ridiculous thing on that list? Like, where you're like, really? Do you need that in captivity or under? I don't think she needed any of it. <laughs> she, she had actually. <laughs> they, don't, they don't put that on like naked and afraid, do they? Or something? Yeah. Well, I think actually it's better to look at the most practical thing because the most practical thing I see on here is paper. But um, let's see, candle wax is a pretty good one too. It's mostly clothes. She loved clothes. She was, you know, she was brought up with skills in the battle axe and sword, and her people actually didn't use um, shields because they learned a dance to jump from side to side instead. So she was fierce on the battlefield, but um, also in fashion. She just loved clothes. She just loved being up to date and being outlandish and exactly who she wanted to be, which is something incredible to me. Um, the, the Lady Gaga of her. Uh, yes. <laughs> I have to tell you that your birthday cartoon where you are uh, supposed to be Katerina Sforza, um, our illustrator was given the choice um, of making you uh, this queen instead. And he was worried about annoying your dad by too much flesh on show, which is why he did you as yeah. the Renaissance lady instead of the African queen. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I'm like coming across today. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you. I think we've had enough revelations uh, for your family to deal with today. Um, she was very intelligent. Moving on, I guess. Uh, yeah, she yeah. Was very, and <laughs> she was very um, also just intelligent in her campaign, and she knew how to weigh her options. You know, at a time when she was again trapped by the Portuguese, she sent a note saying, "Don't worry, I, I, I'm here to surrender." And she snuck out overnight, knowing she would be caught doing that. She had a group of slaves that would run in the opposite direction. And she knew the Portuguese were more interested and preoccupied with obtaining slaves than capturing this nuisance that the governor had asked them to go after. Um, she did a lot of really important decisions, and she was one of those people who also fought with her men. I, I think it's – we don't see a lot in our – even in our book of the people who fought side by side and made the decisions – 
which mm. we've said at times um, with Katerina, especially we said that sometimes is something that helped her decisions and, and looking out for her people. But I think for Jenga helped her military decisions, but um yeah, so another great scene from on that campaign that I love to think about is um, when she was 50 years old and she scaled a cliff when she was caught by the Portuguese, um, which my dad and I like to laugh about a lot because uh, his mother, my grandmother, won't even sit in the balcony at church <laughs> at the same uh, age. But um, she was athletic. She was doing all these things and, and being with her people, which I thought was really amazing. And she eventually links up with the baddest bunch you can imagine, pretty much a biker gang, scariest thing, um, tribes people called the Imbangala who worshipped violence and blood and war and sacrificed babies for war oils that they would wear. And I think they live in Croydon now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't be dissing the crocs, man. <laughs> Which is where Johnny is um, right now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, hopefully we did not partake in, in these kind of things, but this is her third name change that I, I kind of preluded to. Um, and it's, it's a very long African name, but the English version is Queen Jinga, Master at Arms and Great Warrior, which I think is great. So she's had three. She's had Jinga, Ana de Sousa, her Catholic name, and now her Imbangala warrior name. And it kind of shows her metamorphosis throughout and, same thing with the other two. She wanted to join these people. The peaceful ancestor worshipping Mubundu people she had previously led were terrified of the Imbangala, but she taught them what they could learn from them and that ferocity could be embraced. And she taught the Imbangala people the benefits of not constantly moving around and settling and establishing trade and, and roots, which is something I think is really incredible. Um her story kind of ends a little bit when the Dutch come along and, and it's going great and, and she's about to team up with the Dutch to fight off the Portuguese. But unfortunately, they leave her out in the cold um, just as she needs them. They say, don't worry, we're on our way, we're on our way, just in time for them to get out of Africa and surrender to the Portuguese. So they were the jerk boyfriend who left. But um, No, I know, so rude. Um and she, after that, there's a few key um, military decisions that didn't quite work out. One was um, they decided that they would um, have a white and a black rooster fight. And I believe it's what they said when they the black rooster won, um, it was time to go to war, um, which I use in my daily decisions, but maybe <laughs> not use the military it, decisions. It, it worked on your, your med surge exam, right? I hope so. It's on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't let the chickens out this time. Um, but oh, sorry. Um, that you know, after that, it kind of peters out, and and she has a bit of a back and forth with the Portuguese. Highs being at a time completely shutting off the slave trade for them and uh, putting a tourniquet on their income, um, and kind of just being the bane of their existence. But she ends her reign in a somewhat peaceful agreement with the Portuguese just outside of the original kingdom that she had always fought for. Um, but she spends um, pretty much her 80s um, getting these three groups of people to work together, writing to the Vatican, um, establishing her kingdom, um, telling amazing stories, which I think is a beautiful picture to me that, you know, some queens don't get, some queens 
you know, die early or captured and things like that. But she really has like a beautiful long story arc and she gets to at the end of the day be that old grandmother sitting and talking about the time she scaled the cliff and went hand to hand combat against the Portuguese and fought with warrior tribes. Um which is incredible to me. And she died peacefully at 81 years old in 1663 as a Catholic requesting no sacrifices, but old habits die hard. (laughs) And all the locals definitely partook in some of that because they appreciated her so much. But I love that story because even saying it out loud, it just is this circular malleable story of this amazing woman who didn't see a difference Um, with gender, sexuality, religion, peace, and war, she saw opportunities. She knew what she wanted, and she wasn't going to let anything define her and anything take that away from her. So that's why I chose her. I really like her, and I really like your choice. I'm trying to sound intelligent now. So we had Emma's choice, which was someone who acted within the the confines and the boundaries uh, that society set out for her, and she was a badass for different reasons. But Jinga um, is someone who is just constantly adapting and constantly evolving um, in order to stay ahead. And I think that's a different kind of badassery because she's not necessarily more violent than the blokes around or anything, but she she won't let herself be defined with one particular label, whatever she needs to do for her people and for herself and her own well-being, She goes out and does it, which I think is a different kind of badassery. Um, Johnny, have you got any questions? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly an intriguing story. Um, one of the things again, that I've learned from doing this over the, over the last few weeks is um, when you're in the kind of position that, that she was in, your ability to, to, to write history in your own images is, is obviously quite enhanced. So I'm intrigued to know how much of, of this we're accepting as as gospel and how much there is possibly a little bit of um, self-aggrandizement in terms of um, of her having kind of control of, of her, her image, as it were. Oh, of her narrative. Uh-huh. So she, as, as I mentioned, uh, she was definitely one to act, but she was also one to write, you know, another one of her dualities. So she has countless letters that um, she would actually will really dictate, not necessarily write. Um, and of course the Portuguese accounts, which, which were numerous about her. And I think that's almost more interesting sometimes to hear about her from the enemy perspective and to understand, mm. you know, the people who didn't even like her and what they were saying about her. Um, it's kind of what we had to draw the two sides of together. Yeah. Was there, was there, is there a sort of a, a degree of respect from the other side? Oh uh, yeah, definitely. They, you know, they worked together at a time. They, um, for a good while established trade and, and um, they were good partners. So there's definitely some of that, but even at times when they were fighting, they had to have some respect for this woman, you know, who not only commanded people, but fought with her men as well. So there's definitely a lot of respect in the history for her. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Holmes? Yeah, um, according to the internet... <laughs> <laughs> that was a great start. Yeah. <laughs> she had multiple husbands, and she made them dress in women's clothes, and also she made them sleep among her maids in waiting. And if they touched any of those maids sexually, they'd be instantly killed. Is there any truth in that? There is, there is definitely, and um, the word maid actually um, is something interesting to me because it's actually, she had this super badass um, female battalion of bodyguards 
um, who were the the maids in question. Some of them might have been maids as well. Um, but if, if you've ever seen the movie Black Panther, it makes me think exactly of that. They're the all-female bodyguard crew. Um, she had one of those, and, and that's what I was saying about gender and sexuality. She would dress as a man sometimes. She would ask at times to be called king and him and things like that. Um, but, yeah, completely true. They'd have to sleep in the same place, but they could not touch anyone, or they would be beheaded, which she was very liberal with. So. Money, that's something I could probably relate to at my age, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Eleanor, how impressed are you with Queen Jingo? Um, I am pretty much ready to go back in time and volunteer as a guards person. Um, <laughs> I knew you'd like her. <laughs> in order to slake my um, unending bloodlust. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's always so great to see um, these examples. And then at the same time, I'm like, Man, I really do revel in violence, huh? Oh no! <laughs> yeah, the fact that you get really not... excited by it, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I think all of us on this call probably are. <laughs> <We're> gonna... yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's no one normal on this call. Let's face it. <laughs> uh, right, where should we go next? I tell you what, let's go to your dad, Emily. Let's see if dad can do better uh, now that he's figured out the time difference. Hey, John. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Am I here now or am I talking an hour from now? Anyway, sorry about <laughs> how that. Are you, how are you uh, dealing with lockdown lately? Oh. Lockdown, I was doing great until just a few moments ago when I had to go into mourning because I've got a bottle of 17-year Deanston uh, scotch that I, I have been keeping around for a while, thought this would be a nice occasion, and I just pulled the cork, and the cork broke off halfway. So, um, you know, other than that, uh, other than that and what I keep hearing about, an impending beef shortage, which would make that uh, Lady Gaga dress that we're, we're talked about earlier much more valuable. Um, <laughs> doing fine, doing fine. Because you mentioned on episode two that Americans love their beef, and if there was a beef shortage, there may be trouble. Yeah, beef and chicken, that was uh, at first uh, kind of a panic item. Fish, not so much. Now everything's kind of back to normal except for the toilet paper. So, you know. We'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll check it. Yeah, we're adjusting. <laughs> we're, we're eating more starches to uh, help out with that. So, so anyway. Nice. Um, um, yes. So how intimidated are you feeling on a scale of one to ten, ten now, being the only guy here apart from the judges? Um, all I up goes to 11. 
Um, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, you know, it, look, there are a lot of awesome people that we're talking about here, and it is very difficult to say, you know, depends on how you want to characterize badassery and whether, as we heard before, whether we're talking about in the private sphere, sort of in the intellectual sphere, uh, or, or the public sphere, you know, how do you define it? I really um, like, as ever, um, all of our guests have defined it slightly differently, which I think is a great thing about putting such a broad question out there, and it's not that I'm just lazy um, and can't be asked <laughs> to think of a better question. A- absolutely. But um, you've done a U-turn as well, haven't you, like Emma, at the mm-hmm. last minute. So you were going to go with your beloved Israeli babushka. Yeah, I, I was going to. And, you know, you got to admit that when uh, you're a grandma in your 70s and you send out hit squads – around the world to track down terrorists and then they get made that story gets made into a Steven Spielberg film then um you know you're you you're definitely in the conversation but uh I kind of went back to uh to sort of an old friend who uh Emily and I talked about at one point and uh, you mentioned the 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 cartoon of Emily as Katarina Sforza and I just keep coming back to her as one of the if ultimate badasses and here, Just for the sake of you being her dad, her skirt was down in this cartoon, right? I, I, I appreciate that yeah. very, very much. Um, I'm sure her, her, her boyfriend, uh, you know, would have uh, appreciates that too. So we'll, we'll just go with that. Um, yeah, Katerina, uh, you know, she starts off from a family of badasses. In fact, uh, unlike Jenga, who sort of reinvented herself more times than Lady Gaga, um, Katerina was sort of the, here's the family I'm from, almost like a, a, a godfather type family. Here are the guys I'm from, and this is what defines me. Her, her family was the, uh, the, the ducal family that owned Milan, and this is in the, uh, early, basically through the 15th century Italy. So we're talking the, the mid 1400s roughly to when she gets her start. Um, her dad, uh, her dad's family, uh, has been they they uh, commanded uh, troops of mercenaries fighting in for different kingdoms before they settled down and, and became the Dukes of Milan. They're such a badass family that as their family crest, they adopted the symbol of a giant serpent with a crown eating a baby. And in later versions of it, maybe you know maybe it's not a baby, it may be a grown up, but. Um, that was basically who they were. And, uh, if you're ever stuck in traffic behind an Alfa Romeo or in front of one, if you look at the badge of that car, you can still see the image, uh, cleaned up of a snake eating a human wearing a crown. So that's, that's the kind of family she hailed from. Uh, growing up, she was a little hoyden. She was taught to fight, to ride, to hunt. Uh, she did a lot of boar hunting. Uh, basically her father, the Duke of Milan, uh, was one of those early Renaissance guys who believed in, in training his children, legitimate, illegitimate boy or girl up in the same way. And he taught them all to be tough kids. So she, she goes through the 1400s and the early 1500s running across a lot of the big names of the Italian Renaissance. So she hung out with Leonardo da Vinci and uh, Sandro Botticelli. She actually had the birth of Venus in one of her living rooms one time. Uh, she negotiated with Niccolo Machiavelli. Uh, she fought the papal armies while Michelangelo was chipping his pieta out of a big block of marble. <clears throat> she was a uh, bride at 10. 
she was a widow at age 25. She became a, a botanist, a warrior, a cosmetologist. She was a rape victim, a general. She was a tyrant, a mother, a good penitent. Um, so she, she was basically the most, I think, the most interesting woman of the Italian Renaissance. Uh, her story basically starts off in the 1470s. She's 10 years old. Her The pope dies, and so a new pope comes in. And the new pope would like to get his hands on some of her family's uh, holdings closer to Rome. And he wants to do this real estate deal. Well, uh, Katerina's father, in turn, wants the Pope's help. Uh, he, wa- he wants to get his, his uh, title of the Duke of Milan confirmed, and he's got to get that. He's, he needs the Pope's help to, to work through the paperwork with the Holy Roman Emperor to get that done. So they, they decide to, to do this real estate deal where the father is going to sell some land to the Pope, and they seal the deal by, by a marriage to the uh, Pope's son, who is... Uh, uh, 33 years old at the time. Now, the the bride to be was going to be this 11 year old cousin of Katerina, and you know normally back then it wasn't unusual to marry kids off at a very early age, but usually they would stay with the family until they were old enough to have children or, yeah. or reproduce around 14, 15 or so. But uh, this guy, the this guy, the the Pope's actually nephew. I said son, but it's his nephew. Wanted, uh, wanted his bride that night. And so the appalled mom of the girl said, hell no, we're not going to do that. So this real estate deal is falling apart. And Katerina's dad says, Hey, look, uh, cousin's not going to, not willing to do it. I need you to step in. And so she was married off to this gruff 33 year old papal nephew at age 10. And, uh, he takes off back to Rome two weeks later. She never sees him for several years and then uh, finally gets back with him. Uh, and they become the uh, count and countess of uh, a couple of uh, towns, Imola and Forli, sort of in the Romana province of Italy. So, you know, during this time, uh, Katerina, when she's a young teenager, um, she sees her father assassinated by some rivals. And, and guys were getting knocked off all throughout the Italian Renaissance. And uh, the mom, her, her mom, jumps into the fray as soon as dad's dead. She uh, marshals the troops. She declares basically a martial law in Milan, locks the place down, hunts down and butchers the assassins, makes sure everybody knows that they were working alone, and uh, basically just locks the place down tighter than a quarantine and uh, uses her muscle because her, her philosophy was when the head of the house goes, then the woman's got to step up and make sure the family's protected. Again, almost almost a la you know the the Corleone family. Mm. So uh, that that was Katerina's mo. Um, her her husband is in danger. A few years later, when the pope uh, the pope is on his deathbed. Now he dies, and at that time, the 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 citizens of Rome sort of viewed this time of no pope as like the purge. You can do whatever you want. You can settle vendettas. You can go loot. You can do all kinds of. You can you can basically get do a lot of shit that you're not supposed to do as a good Catholic. Uh-huh. If there's no pope to remind you <laughs> of the wages of sin. So so basically, uh, you know, this happens in 1484. Um, the, there's a new pope who's going to be elected. 
but they all knew that the new pope was going to uh, probably strip away the rights and, and privileges of Katerina's husband because he had been favored by the old pope. So, but the but the the cardinals have got to elect a new pope quickly. So they uh, because of all this mob rule breaking out over Rome. Well, Katerina jumps on a horse. She's seven months pregnant. She takes a small group of bodyguards and hightails it down to Castle San Angelo, the big round, you know, castle in uh, uh, more former Roman ma- uh, mausoleum in Rome overlooking the Tiber River. She takes over the castle, basically command, takes command of it, and uh, points the cannons on the Tiber Bridge and prevents the cardinals from electing the new pope until they promise to give her husband uh, confirmation of all her all of his rights and, and basically leave his his uh, his power undisturbed. So she's able to basically control Rome. She controls the ability of a new pope to be elected. Uh, finally, her husband, who is is more of a pushover than she is, says, "Hey, honey, it's okay. You can you can back off now." And she's kind of reluctant to do it, but she's you know seven months pregnant. This is in August of uh, 1484, and uh, she she decides, okay, if, if husband's satisfied, I'm satisfied. Well, fast forward a couple more years, husband, who is very unpopular in his town, gets assassinated by this family that used to that that used to and and wants to in the future run their town. So they capture Katerina, they capture her children. And she knows she's about to be captured. She hears her husband um, being murdered in a, in a room next to where she is. So she's able to get a message out to one of her her uh, couriers, and she says, "Go on over to the fort. It's the it's the the town's fort, the the Rocco de Ravaldino, and tell him, tell the guy in charge, do not surrender the castle, no matter what anybody says, no matter what I say. Don't surrender." So, the castle controls the town. The uh, the assassins take Katerina out to the castle the next day. They tell her to order the castle to uh, surrender, and the guy dutifully refuses uh, refuses to do it. She starts bawling tears. Oh, they're going to kill me if you don't. The guy doesn't budge, and the the assassins think this looks kind of scripted. So they take her back, and they basically say, "We're going to kill you and your children if you don't get give us the castle." So. She works out a deal with the castle uh, captain, and the castle captain says, I'll surrender the fort, but I'm going to need a notarized letter from you, Katerina, that says, I didn't chicken out. I was still a good soldier. I obeyed your rules, uh, your orders, and that's the only reason I gave up the castle, because I don't want my next employer to think I'm, you know, chicken. So, and he said, I want you to settle the, I want you to sign this document inside the castle so everybody knows you're not under compulsion. So the assassins are kind of like, I don't know about this, but they do it. So they let her go into the castle. She walks across the drawbridge. She turns around to them and gives them uh, a, a, a hand gesture that's the equivalent of shooting them the bird. It's They call it the four figs back then. It's basically a screw you, and she disappears. And so a couple hours later, the guys, the, the assassins, bring her children out to the moat, and they tell her, we're going to kill your children right here on the moat if you don't surrender the castle right this minute. Now, Machiavelli, who's like hanging around here, you know, he wasn't actually witnessing this, but he talked to some people who did. 
uh, recorded that she appears on the battlements up on the top of the wall and she hikes up her skirt and she points to her privates and says, kill all my children if you want. I can make more. Well, the assassins were like, this wasn't part of the script and they weren't getting pretty badass, isn't it? So, well, it, and you know, it sounds like she doesn't care about her children, but she probably knew that if she surrendered the castle, they'd all be dead. Yeah. So that was her one gambit, like something out of Breaking Bad. So she, uh, so, so basically they agree to go back. Um, you know, they, they basically run back with their tails between their legs. She starts shelling the town from the castle and then the, the townspeople basically turn against the assassins. She hunts them down. She hires a guy, uh, a, a town executioner, who basically wipes out about two dozen of these uh, these family and assassin members, and uh, basically cows the town into uh, into uh, co- uh, you know submission. Uh, in the end, she got crossways with the Borgia Pope Alexander the Sixth, uh, who doesn't actually look a lot like Jeremy Irons from the uh, Showtime series. <laughs> But uh, was just that powerful, and he sends his son Cesare to to, to uh, lay siege to Caterina's uh, castle. Uh, she ends up uh, holding him off for a while, but basically placed her trust in a castle where and and a mobile army is just going to be able to wait you out. Eventually, the uh, Pope's uh, forces were able to bring down the castle walls. Uh, she's captured. Cesare rapes her for about nine nights. And, uh, drags her back to Rome and they're going to put her on a show trial for, uh, some uh, alleged assassination plot against the Pope. She manages to outfox the Pope by saying, yeah, we can do the show trial if you want. Let me tell you what my defense is going to be, that your soldiers committed depredations in my town to good Catholic girls, that you raped me, that you've taken, you've done a lot of really nasty things. I'm going to make sure everyone in Rome knows about it. And the Pope thought about it. And he just kind of quietly let the whole trial project drop. He, he didn't green light it after that. In the end, she uh, was held in the Castle San Angelo, which she had once uh, ruled uh, as a as a warrior, and uh, ended up. Uh, uh, she was finally convinced to give up her claims to certain lands in return for her freedom. She evaded a papal assassin, and then eventually went on to live in uh, in uh, uh, Florence for the rest of her life. And, uh, ended up becoming the grandfather, or, or grandmother, I mean, to, uh, Cosimo de' Medici, who became the Grand Duke and sort of led, uh, Florence into its golden age. Uh, what is left of her legacy, uh, is, is not only the, her life story, but, uh, she, she had a number of, uh, of, of documents, a bunch of papers put into the Florence archives, uh, and uh, called Experimenti. And these were basically her cosmetology and health and beauty recipes that she came up with over her life that she had uh, basically left as kind of her intellectual legacy. So long story, but that is the badass uh, Katerina Sforza. And I will defend uh, her, her badassery uh, in this dissertative uh, setting. If I can get the cork back out of my whiskey bottle. Yeah, I feel really sorry for you. Um I like, so we've gone from Emma doing someone within, oh, we sound so intellectual. We did the female sphere and then we've gone to someone adaptable like Jinga. And now we've gone on to someone who, uh, operates completely with men on their terms, um, and in, in their way, haven't we? Um, Holmes, have you got any questions? Yeah. I mean, 
She certainly wouldn't want to mess with her. And um, it sounds like if she'd had a normal, a, a sort of, I, I say normal, that's probably not the right word. If she'd had a, a more stable life, she seems to be reacting to all these extreme circumstances she seems to unwittingly find herself in. Um, I just wondered if, you know, it, in different times, whether she would have just had a, a relatively more straightforward life or not. You know, she had uh, three husbands or lovers over her that, that we know about for sure over the course of her uh, her life. And the third one was a Florentine, member of the Medici family. That's why she moved there later. And uh, while he was alive, she loved him. Uh, two of her two of her significant others were assassinated. Um, the first one was a rocky political marriage, the one when she was 10 years old. But her second and third relationships, she seemed genuinely happy. And for a while, she seemed content to uh, just kind of work at her botany and cosmetology and just sort of do her hobbies uh, while the while while the world uh, changed. Uh, but of course, during the 1400s, uh, early 1500s, the world was changing rather rapidly, and she didn't have the luxury of avoiding uh, adventure. Anything else, Holmes? No, nothing else from me. Johnny? Um, yeah, I mean, I, Italian history fascinates me, and I think anyone um, who, who reaches sort of that level of society and, and survives and thrives for any period of time is, is, is badass by definition because it was a fairly crazy time. Um, I'm struggling to find sort of questions about her because I'm just sort of kind of reading through as you're, you're talking about her and it was ex- explained incredibly well. Um, no, I, I, that, that's, that, that, that's good for me. I mean, it kind of begs the question, doesn't it, from what Holmes was saying that does it make you, and anyone can answer this that's with us, does it make you not a badass if you're just reacting to stuff that's happening to you instead of you going out to make it happen or does it make you more of a badass because you never asked for it and you just deal with your shit I think I really like the the whole kind of uh, rise of the occasion thing you know Um, you never no one really truly knows how much of a badass they are until they're put in positions like that I think so I love to see it frankly yeah me too Emily what do you think I think I definitely agree because I think there's reacting to things and then there's having a sense that something historically important is happening. You know, there's a time where she was seven months, seven months pregnant when she first rode down um, to Castle San Angelo and she could have stayed at home. She was pregnant. She, her husband was just off on the countryside on some vendetta. He could have taken charge, but she knew this had to be done right now. This was definitely, to me, a rise to the occasion because at the time she wasn't expected to do anything. Emma, what do you think? I agree. I think that there is rarely a woman expected to do anything um, and um, rarely are they given the opportunity to go out and try and do something, but they can regularly confronted with stuff that they have to deal with um, and the height of badassery is dealing with it well or dealing with it in a cool way. Yeah, definitely. And she um, did both. I guess the difficulty we've got is, you know, we've had a, the candidates we've had so far are all quite broad. And there's, because we don't have one definition of what constitutes badassery. That's the, the difficulty we're trying to wrestle with, I guess. That's the fun bit. Yeah, that's no pressure, <laughs> but you're surrounded by girls who'll beat you up if you get it wrong. Quite <laughs> a really scathing yeah. tweet about you. Yeah, we will, we will own you on Twitter. Um, 
and Ellen has got loads of followers, so no pressure. Uh, Alina. Alina, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go to you next, um, cause I want to save Elena for last, cause I know she's done something a little bit different. Uh, Alina, um, there was no point telling you who Alina was going to argue for because you wouldn't have heard of her, but, um, that does not mean it's not a very worthy candidate. So Alina, tell us, who is your most badass woman in history? So I've chosen actually the grandmother of a friend of mine. Um, and I know that uh, Claudia is going to be listening to this. So I'm going to do your grandmother justice because I absolutely loved this woman. I could have chosen from a huge long list of people from my specialty to the Warsaw Project. But I've chosen Halina Poshkovska specifically because for me personally, she was a badass woman. Um, I met her and unfortunately she died in 2017, so a huge loss to the whole world when she passed away. But anyway, who was Halina Poshkovska? Well, Halina Poshkovska was born and raised in Warsaw in 1927 to a Jewish family. Um, they were quite assimil- assimilated to culture in Poland, so she didn't quite understand, you know, the difference between her and just an average Polish person. Obviously, the Germans came and invaded in 1939. Everything changes in Poland. She ended up being thrown into the ghetto, into the Warsaw ghetto with her family, her mother, her father and her older sister. Obviously, life in the ghetto was not ideal for anybody. The poverty, the lack of food, um, the lack of work. It was just not they couldn't they couldn't survive, basically. So her father, who was quite well known on the outside, as we say, the outside, the, the Aryan side, managed to help them escape. So I quite like the way they escaped out of the ghetto. It's quite creative. At the time, the ghetto still had a tram that would run through it. So what she did with her family is somehow the tram ended up slowing down just at the right crucial moment. And they all jumped onto this tram and they managed to get themselves out of the ghetto. She ends up getting on a boat up the river Viswa to her grandparents in Starshof. But unfortunately, this is where things seem to go even more south. <clears throat> she ends up going to Krakow with her sister after her mother asked uh, a local lady to help them out. Her parents and her grandparents get arrested for being Jews and are put on a train to Trevinka. The parents end up jumping off of the train. Uh, they, have, they have this thing about jumping off of trains and trams for some reason. And they actually manage to get themselves into Warsaw and uh, safe but her grandparents ended up perishing, unfortunately, in the gas chambers. So what's happening at this point with Halina and her sister? Well, they end up going to Krakow. They stay at this lady's house, but unfortunately she says, she takes the money and she says, look, I can't take care of you guys. Bye. So now she's, if I'm not mistaken, she's about 14, 15 at this point, stranded in Krakow with her sister, nowhere to go, nowhere to stay, so they managed to survive a couple of days and they end up in like the shack where they're discovered by the police, where in theory, because she's Jewish, she has no papers. They basically should have been handed over to the German police. But the police officer let them go and they managed to get themselves into Warsaw. Um, basically, they were hiding out in Warsaw before they managed to get themselves some fake papers, which ended up actually saving Halina's life because the next thing that happens, she actually gets arrested and she's taken to Alea Shuka. Um, so for people who are listening, Alea Shuka was the Gestapo headquarters. It was a place of ultimate brutality. The amount of people that were just tortured endlessly was just horrific. 
But the question is, why was she arrested? So the police ended up raiding where she was living and they found a poem. And um, Halina, for those people who don't know her, she's a very creative person. And she would write down these poems and keep them in a book, literally from memory. I mean, this woman, her creativity is just unreal. And I'm incredibly jealous because her daughter and her granddaughter are exactly the same as her. They're all creative people, and I am clearly not. Um, <clears throat> and as you can all very well tell. So she wrote down this poem from her memory, and she'd rolled it up, and they found it, and they thought it was some sort of code or something, so they arrested her. They put her into the tram. So the tram was a row of benches that was literally like a tram, and you had to sit there, and you could end up waiting there for a few hours or a few days. You couldn't talk. Um, and it basically, it was a thing of fear for these people. So she sat there and waited. Finally, she got her turn. She ends up being taken to the room to be, um, um, gosh, my mind has gone from English. I can't speak English now because I'm just translating in my mind. Um, not tortured. What's the thing before being tortured? Can someone help me here with my language? Um, Interrogated. That's the word. Thank you. Because I'm, I'm, I'm having just Wukivanya in my head and I can't say the word. So interrogated. <clears throat> See, this people, this is a problem when you're speaking multiple languages. Um, so she, before she's being interrogated, she, uh, so she gets interrogated, apologies, and the German officer sits there and he says, look, what, what, how did you get, how did you get this? So she ended up reciting this poem from memory and he was so impressed by her, they didn't talk to her, which is great, but the downside is, they took it to Gelshufka. So Gelshufka was uh, not a prison. It was uh, like it was like a concentration camp, but it's not, never been defined as a concentration camp. And this place was in actually in Warsaw, in a main city. So she gets taken to this camp, and she manages to get herself released. And it was just crazy because usually people could buy themselves out. Her sister didn't have the money. And basically, she managed to convince someone and a, do a doctor to help her, where they basically took her, an, her for an x-ray and said, oh, she's really unhealthy to be deported to a labor camp. She has to stay here. And it just got all quite complicated. But she ended up getting out on the plus side. So she goes back to where she was and a couple of years pass. And we come on to the most important date, which is the 1st of August, 1944. For those who don't know why that date is important, that is the date the Warsaw Uprising broke out. Five o'clock, Gudjanavo, our W. So at this point, Halina and her sister are staying with this artist. They hear this commotion because not everybody was aware that the Warsaw Uprising was going to break out. So they're sitting in this flat and suddenly on Lita Smolikovskiego, and they hear this commotion and they're like, what is, what is happening here? So they go out, they go across the street to where they have the Polish teachers building. It's like this very, it's still standing. It's an incredibly huge building. And they walk in and I go, oh my God, what's, what's going on here? And she says, um, the, the, the guys say, oh, you know, the Warsaw Uprising has broke out. And I'm going to give you a quote. I was going to leave this till the end, but I love this quote. So I interviewed, um, Halina a few years ago before she died. And the one thing she said to me, and it stuck in my mind for the rest of my whole life. And she said, the first day of the Warsaw Uprising was the first day of freedom. She could truly feel free on this first day. She could fight 
for for her family, for her mother. And the other thing I didn't mention was that her mother actually got caught in a roundup and uh, was sent to Maidanek and killed for Maidanek. So unfortunately, that, uh, she was there to fight her mother. They never knew what happened to her after the war. But anyway, so they're in this building and they say, look, we need people to start painting uh, the, the Polish eagle on the helmets. And so she started painting and she's getting bored at this point. She's, she, she's a 17 year old girl. She wants to fight for her country. And the guys go, look, all right, go see Rafał. Rafał, um, is quite important in my history and my family history. He was my great grandfather's platoon leader. She describes this man as an incredibly handsome aristocrat, a very well respected. And she joins this group of 20 young men, about 20 years old. The problem is she is now coming into a platoon that was an assault platoon. These guys had been fighting during the during the occupation together for two years. They were very well known. They had the best weapons because they'd been finding weapons over the time of the occupation. And she was coming into this group of men who were so tightly knit. And they basically accepted her. And Rafa said, look, you could see how great she was, how the fire in her. He's like, come on, you know, you can be our liaison officer. She's like, great. So she starts off with them and they offered her a weapon because it's a logical thing. She's going to be with an assault platoon. She's got to have a weapon. She can't be unarmed out there, except she declined. She didn't take the weapon. Instead, she agreed to carry a grenade. And the moment she ever, she told me this, I'm still thinking, are you serious? You just went 63 days, 63 days okay, where you could have gotten in all sorts of situation without a weapon, instead you had a grenade. That is all you fought with. And there are a lot of women that did this, and I do not want to discount any women that fought for the Warsaw Uprising, because all of these women were all inspirational and all incredible, just absolutely incredible women. But Halina is more of a personal choice for me. But anyway... So 63 days, she ends up going through for the Warsaw Uprising. That is how long it started, how long it lasted. Life was hell. There was no water. There was a lack of food. Um, they weren't bathing. They were constantly un- on edge. Get basically were, were worried that they're going to get shot or anything like that. She ended up taking care of the men. She cooked for them. She took letters. She ran through places where she should have been she should have been dead she ended up having to get past so round where they were based there was a bridge and on the bridge would run a, a panzer tank so for people a panzer tank sorry a panzer train for people who don't know what a panzer train is it is an armored train that would basically shoot at you and there were so many casualties and so many deaths because of this panzer train that would just basically sit they'll go up and down the line and just wait till it saw people and then basically rip them apart. They would be dead. There is, it's, it was just one of the most horrific things. But she managed to get past that. She managed to survive getting past it. Um, I did, I read a little bit where she was a little bit naughty. So we're going to bring out her naughty side. So, um, Claudia, I don't know if you want to hear this about your grandmother, but, uh, she used to get the boys drunk. She would go and get wine from where currently the Chopin um, Museum is and she would basically give the, the men wine and they would all have a bit of a drink. And one day Rafael got very annoyed at her, uh, all in jest, by the way, tongue in cheek, 
He locked her in the room and said, you've got to stay in there now because you keep getting my boys drunk. She actually jumped out the window. But it was all good at the end. Um, in the end, she actually left with the civilian population. She wasn't um, taken as a prisoner of war. After the war, she ended up being a sound operator for dozens of films and over 200 documentaries. She was the nicest, kindest, sweetest woman I have ever met in my life. She has kept in contact with my grandfather um, up until up until she died, and I highly believe she is she is the most inspirational and most badass badass woman. Because come on, who goes into a battle with a grenade and not a weapon? <laughs> that is my bottom line. Okay, she went in there with the grenade and she had the chance to have a pistol. So there you go. Thank you very much, <laughs> Johnny. Any questions? My word, that's an awful lot to take in. Um, no, I, it's, it's a remarkable story, and I think, um, I mean, the, the, some of the stuff we've heard tonight has been incredible. Um, but just when it's based on kind of a, there's a personal testimony, and and you've you've heard this firsthand, is um, is really quite remarkable. Um, and listen, if I can think of questions, I've done sort of kind of absorbing all that. If I can think yeah. of questions, and I'll come back to you. <laughs> it's like well, we just we talked in about. Um, women reacting to stuff that's thrust upon them and that was just a shining example mm. of someone who's just going about their business and then uh, is given a choice to make. Holmes, you got any questions? Yeah, yeah well, my system for my own curiosity really and I think after the uprising was put down wasn't it something like the, the, the Germans then went and carried out wholesale destruction of Warsaw. Now a certain percentage was already destroyed before that and I think the destruction after the uprising, took it up to around 75 or 85% in total of the buildings. But I just wondered what her thoughts were of that, really. It must be an incredible thing to have witnessed. Well, she wasn't there when they destroyed it. They'd evacuated the civilian population by then and uh, sent all the POWs out. They basically destroyed it when it was completely empty. Did she say what it was like to come back to it? No, that I didn't ask her, so... But I can tell you that a lot of a lot of people were, were basically they had to pick their lives back up from nothing. Warsaw's the Warsaw now. Well, you've got to look at Warsaw because if you look at London, for example, London split to north and south because of a river. Warsaw split for east and west. So uh, the western side still stands, and the eastern uh, so the western side was completely destroyed. Uh, most of it was destroyed, um, and the western so the eastern side still uh, was intact. So How when much vodka have you had, Elita? <laughs> <laughs> I've, had, I've, had, I've had beer tonight, actually, okay. funny um, But the, the one, the one, the side that still stands, um, it's still original. And you've still got original buildings standing there. And you do actually, on the other side too, you've just got to know where you're looking. And if anybody wants to come to Warsaw, do let me know, because I know where the original buildings are um, and still standing. So, And you can still see the bullet holes and the water holes and everything else in those buildings. I think just because we did this on a pole position um, and the guys are a little bit sucker punched by that because they were they knew they were getting something Warsaw Uprising. Um, what were the net results of the Warsaw Uprising? Oh, 200,000 dead. Yeah, but didn't we? So we had, we discussed a controversial point of view that wasn't yours. Uh, you don't agree with it, where apparently some people say that it was a total oh, waste of time. Yes. Yes. Okay. So they make you very angry, but they say it, that it was a waste of time because it didn't actually achieve anything. So basically, the controversy stands, and it's actually a generational thing. Mm. 
it's quite interesting um where people say that it was it was crime for the Warsaw uprising to happen because we ended up losing 200,000 people um most of them civilians and literally innocent civilians that were just just there at the wrong time and i i disagree because you've got a city filled with young people who have already been fighting during the occupation for four years four years they've been fighting and they want their freedom they want to fight for their grandmother their brother their uncle their neighbor um lady godiva down the street who basically got arrested and sent to, to auschwitz or dachau um people that were murdered and cutting these people were so suppressed and this is the one thing that people don't understand what life was truly like in warsaw it was pure utter hell they couldn't do they had a they had a policing hour for example i'm going to give you one quick example and i know i'm talking a lot but i carry a photo around with me that was given to my grandmother by a friend of hers and it's a very tall young handsome man and i was very drawn to this photograph and i asked her what is what is all who is this she said it was a friend of hers and he used to work outside of warsaw and he'd have to get the train back home every day and one day the train was delayed it wasn't his fault it was nobody's fault and he ended up coming home after the policing hour so he walked from the station in the snow home german patrol decided to follow the footsteps because he was out beyond policing hour knocked on his door and shot him that is what life was like in warsaw people lived in constant fear yeah and i think is- to to look at it in hindsight and say that you should have known that it would be too costly and you should have just sat and taken it and waited for the end of the war is a pretty naive stance to take exactly and unfortunately there are a lot of people that do that could they have waited a few more days yes they could have could they have done it in a slightly different way yes they could have could they have gotten the russians involved a bit more maybe nobody knows okay these are all hypotheses and i you know if we're going to do this for my subjects let's do it for ancient history let's do it for the medieval period okay mm. also, was, there was there, there were sort of political issues around the russians as well wasn't there as in you know i i you know this more than i do but wasn't it the case that actually the russians backed off a little bit because oh yeah yep they sat on uh, they sat on the bank and watched warsaw burn to the ground and so the warsaw uprising ended up ended on the 2nd of october 1944 the russians came into warsaw in january 1945 so they sat and waited and the reasoning behind that was that those involved in the warsaw uprising wouldn't have wouldn't have been favorable to the soviets yes so maidanek was actually ended up being a prisoner of war camp for the home army so they were it was a way to suppress uh, opposition okay Um let's move on to our last contestant for today. Um I've saved her till last partly because she's awesome and partly because and she's going to blow you all away. But because she's done something a little bit different um because I don't think she's gone for just one woman. She's gone for a collective group. Yeah, it's a collective. Badass women who just we've had mention of popes already but they just decided fuck no basically. <laughs> uh Eleanor tell us more. Ah uh, yeah, so um this is an interesting uh, one. I'm going to I'm going to set the scene. I'm going to set the scene. So we know of this group of women uh through a really interesting document which is the arch uh archdeacon Yano pa- of uh Pavel Yanovitsis a protocol of Prague that goes from the years uh 1377 to 1389. 
And what the uh, Archdeacon's protocol is, basically he comes Archdeacon of Prague, and he sets out to go parish to parish to every single church in Prague and um, the ones surrounding in the outskirts as well, and says, hey, everyone, I'm the Archdeacon. Uh, are there any problems that you would like to flag up to me? Um, and it's a really interesting kind of litany of complaints from various <laughs> parishioners, various priests, you know, just basically, you know, complaining about their own priest, complaining about the priest next door, complaining about, you know, what have you. But it also is a really great record of what daily life is actually like for real people in Prague. And one of my favorite complaints comes from a parish uh, in the Obora neighborhood. Um, Obora was, I mean, it's still there, but we don't call it that anymore. Just kind of underneath the castle near the Rajini in the lesser town. Mm-hmm. Um, it is right kind of near the Strahov Monastery, right up against where the city walls would have been. And one of the priests there says, well, yes, I have something to complain about to you, um, Archdeacon. And my trouble is that I have gone on a little crime-fighting crusade, and there is a local brothel in the neighborhood. And so I went in there, and I decided that I was going to run all of the sex workers out of there. Uh, and I was going to take control of the house, and I was going to turn it over into a house of God. Um, and the, the archdeacon says, hmm, very interesting. Okay, well, uh, that, that's one way to uh, uh, treat sex workers, I suppose. Uh, but the uh, sex workers were having exactly none of it. And now we know they're sex workers because they're referred to in uh, this particular uh, document as uh, mulieres publicae, or public women. And so this is kind of indicative, we think, of the fact that they're working in a brothel where there's, you know, common access uh, to these particular women. Because, as we all know, women are usually privately owned, am I right? Am <laughs> yeah, I right? Exactly. Uh, and that's o- only kind of a joke, because one of the things that we don't really think about when we think about women in the medieval period is kind of the concept of a household and what that means. So if you're a single woman in most cities um, across Europe at the time and you come into a new city, so say you manage to get off the farm, right? So you're one of the 85% of the population who are peasants. And you're like, you know what, it's not for me. And you manage to run away and your lord hasn't kind of taken you in because you're a serf and hasn't made you come back. And you make it to the city, Bright Lights Big City. A lot of cities have specific rules that if you're a woman, you need to become attached to a house within a week or you'll be thrown in jail or sent out of town. Because women who are unaccompanied, women who are not held by a house, and that's what a household actually means, women who are not held by a house are automatically suspect. And we see women like that who are not held by a house in Prague, and they come up in the Archdiaconate Protocol as well because they're referred to as mulieres suspecta or suspect women. And who knows what they're doing? It's just that people will report on them to the local archdeacon and be like, I don't know, those women, they're suspect. Who knows what they could be doing? Literally. This is bullshit, isn't yeah, it? Right? Yeah, right? It's, it's absolutely crazy. And, I mean, let's you think this is just like a Prague thing. We know that that definitely holds in multiple cities in England. So, for example, um, there's laws about women having to join houses um, if they are in, um, for example, Lincoln. We know that they exist for York. They certainly exist um, uh, in Southampton. All these different cities have laws about them, although, you know, how quickly you have to get attached to a house um, is up in the air. So usually that means you'll go into service, you'll be a maid or something like that. But the other way that you could become attached to a house is you can become a sex worker uh, because that's a house, 
right? And so these women are all kind of a part of this one house in Obora. Um, so this priest decides to kick them out, and this was rather a fashion at the time in 14th century Prague. Um, there were a number of brothels around the joint that were what we would consider to be uh, probably licensed or possibly municipal brothels, um, which is very, very common um, because you have to have brothels in the medieval period, it's considered, or um, dudes will get so horny they will burn the joint down. Um, this is it's a, a bona fide career choice, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. Yeah. And it's like one of the only career work choices that women can make, actually, a lot of the times, because otherwise, what you're doing as a woman in the medieval period is you're probably working on a farm. I mean, that's 85% of all women are working on the farm. Or they are helping their husband with whatever his career is. So um, if you want to actually make a decision about what it is that you want to do, you've kind of got being a maid. Or you've got being a sex worker. And what if you don't want to scrub pots? What if you want to have um, a good and nice time? Uh, what if you enjoy frequenting the beer halls? Um, well, sex work is for you. They made good money, some of them, didn't they? Oh, yeah. It's um, actually an extraordinarily lucrative career. Um, mm. And it's uh, the sort of thing that we know um, women can really come up in the world. So say you're just, again, you know, someone who's, like, come off a farm. This is a, a way not only to get to live in a city and kind of experience new things, be a part of a different culture, have spending money, like, have an interesting life, have a big and interesting life. And um it's one of these things where even though we see priests doing stuff like this, um it's... The reason that there are priests doing stuff like trying to close down brothels is because there's a lot of them around the joint because, you know, eh, people like them. It's a kind of seen as a legitimate form of entertainment in the city. Um, it's pretty much on par. You'll see sex workers talked about in the same way that people talk about um, acrobats or who talk about um, actors. Uh, you can uh, make a joint here about all actors, <laughs> joke here about actors being sluts, um, but you know, whatever. So what uh, you're saying is essentially that they are, they have a bona fide career choice. They're doing a job mm-hmm. that's not icky by job. medieval standards. Yep. And yet this douchebag has yep. come in and decided they have to leave. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, this is a long proud tradition in Prague at this point in time. There used to be another big municipal brothel that got shut down about uh, 40 years before um, by a very charismatic preacher called Jan Milch of Kromerzij, and he turned it into a religious community. But here's the deal. So that one kind of like is very, very famous. Um, the Emperor Charles IV gets involved with it. But that's why it was allowed to go forward, because that brothel was right in the middle of town. It used to be up against the old city walls, which is like adhering to the old rules about uh, sex work, because it's okay for sex work to go, to ha- go ahead as long as it's near a city wall or outside of the city wall. But Charles IV built big new walls all around Prague. He doubles the city size, and suddenly that brothel was right in the middle of the city, and everyone was like, oh, that's a little embarrassing. The middle of the city isn't supposed to be for sex work. It's supposed to be for praying. Uh, someone get a priest in here. So, you know, a priest comes in, they turn it into a religious community, and it gets shut down. What Master Ludwig up in Obora is trying to do is he's sort of trying to like jump on that train, like get, he wants that charismatic preacher money. He wants that money from the court. He wants to be starting his own religious community. So he goes, okay, well, I'm, I'm just kicking these sex workers out. Uh, job done. But the sex workers were having exactly none of it. And they were like, you know what? I'm going to the magistrate. So they marched down to town hall and they're like, this guy is up at our house. He's just kicked us out of our brothel. He's depriving us of our livelihood. Who the hell is this guy? And the magistrate is like, 
you're absolutely right. They go up there. They get all the city guards. They go up there. They kick the priest out. They put all the sex workers back in. They're just like, you know what? Job, the business is back, baby. It's good again. They kick the priest out. And the priest is going, complaining to the archdeacon, saying, well, how can we do this? How can you uh, let these sex workers do this? And the archdeacon was like, well, you're wrong, though. And I absolutely love this because here's this group of women that, you know, we tell ourselves we're supposed to look down on them. We're, we tell ourselves, oh, these poor women, and they were all sex workers, and oh, it's a necessarily a degrading life. It's a terrible thing that no one would choose. And these women were like, A, this is what my life is. B, I will fight to the death for it. I will get everyone involved. This is what I want to do with my life, and this is how I'm going to take control of things. They will take on the church, they will get the police involved, and they will tell you exactly what they are doing with their life. And this is what it was. And I really, really love how they're able to kind of stick it to the man and take advantage of all the legal codes. They know the legal codes. They know exactly where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be doing. And they're not going to let anyone tell them what to do or what to think. And I think it's a really important message for us to kind of consider later on because we don't relate to sex work in the same way uh, as medieval people did. We're much more quickly to kind of like tut about it and like tell stories about how every single person involved in it is a downtrodden and oppressed. And these women are clearly anything but oppressed. And the only person trying to oppress them is the person who's trying to stop them doing their jobs uh, that they chose. So uh, just the my pick is the unionized sex workers of the Obora brothel who are just you know pushing the boat out, living their lives, and uh, doing their thing. I love to see it, frankly. And making yeah. the priest look like an absolute dick as well. Oh, what a dick! <laughs> yeah. What a dick, Master Living. Get out of here with this. Get out of here. Oh, yeah. do we know what happened to him? Uh, Tell so me, he like died he, in he basically. Yeah, basically, he just gets laughed at, and everyone's like, um, you suck. Because it's like, he is just kind of, like, trying to go into these things with all this forever, and he doesn't even, like, understand rules enough to kind of, like, play the game right. So, you know, he's trying to make a name for himself, like, you know, Millich before him, but Millich understands how to play the game. He knows how to get in at court, and he knows the places that you can target if you're trying to, like, do this particular, like, conversion of um, a brothel into a religious house. You can't just do it. You've got to be smarter than that. So he gets laughed at, and that's it. What a sad little man. So sad. <laughs> so sad. It's just, like, pathetic, really. Johnny, any questions? I just, one thing to add, when you, you asked what happened to Ludwig, I was I was so desperately hoping that he, he died of a heart attack in a brothel or something. <laughs> or, like, some outrageous <laughs> syphilis case. Exactly, yeah, that, that, that would have been that would have been perfect. Um, I mean, you know, the, the thing is, you wouldn't even be that far off, because half the complaints um, in this uh, this archdiaconate protocol are, uh, like, you know, where sometimes it's uh, priests who are saying, I tried to shut down a brothel, but a lot of the time it's parishioners being like, our priest is running a brothel. Uh, just, he probably yeah. was trying to shut down a competing brothel. Yeah, that's probably what it was. He was probably like living with uh, three sex workers because, like, I mean, this is—I'm not joking—a thing that happens all the time. Or like, there's another priest uh, whose name escapes me off the top of his head, and um, his parishioners complain about it, and they say, "Man, uh, he's got sex workers like going in his house all the time." And the archdeacon is like, "Dude, is this—is this true? Are you seeing like a sex workers at the vicarage?" And he's like, "Well, yeah, but like, I always pay them right after." and tell them they have to leave so you know 
really. In my defense. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and he literally just thinks that's a defense. He's like, well, I tell him, to, I don't let them stay here. Come on. I mean, like, I'm not crazy. They or don't dirty the sheets afterwards. Or there's a, a story about a um, priest who kind of gets caught seeing a sex worker and, like, someone has kind of roused, you know, the local constabulary or whatever um, to go get him. And, and so he doesn't want to get caught. So he ends up just, like, dipping out of the room, running down the street bare-ass naked through the streets of Prague, like, past a school, past, like, a bunch of choir boys, and, the like, all the parishioners are like, my priest is running naked down the street. And it's just, like, you know, just story after story like this. Or um, there's priests uh, who are down in the old town who um, there's complaints about them because uh, they have been constructing um, from the Latin the way that you would translate it is um, wooden structures in which takes place bitter carnal commingling's in their church grounds. And what that means is that the uh, priests are constructing like wooden fuck shacks <laughs> like around <laughs> in their churchyard. And they're just like, oh, hey, you could use this for sex work if you want or whatever and like charging rent on it. As long as I get a freebie or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's like, so it's uh, 14th century Prague is absolutely chock full of just like all kinds of wild sex work that doesn't, you know, fit the legal bill, right? And this idiot Ludwig went up against like one of like the few institutions that was actually doing things correctly. It's like, mate, if you really wanted it that bad, you could just like go down to one of the sex shacks and like get people <laughs> yeah. out of there, you know, but that, it wasn't about that. It was about, he was kind of like trying to expropriate, you know, property and the women knew that. I, uh, uh, just as a, as a final observation, I think it's it's one of the most intriguing stories in the sense that actually it's one of those things that resonates still today in the sense that it's it's just the, trying to oppress people and, and deny them a voice and deny them the you know the right to work as and, and earn a living and all the rest of it, um, and just that people will always eventually fight back against that. So uh, mm-hmm. for that, it, it, it intri- it's a very very intriguing story. Yeah, uh, it's, in- it's interesting because it's got all the highlights of a weird medieval stuff going on, but it's so human. It's just like so very mm-hmm. clear exactly what these women were about, and yeah. we don't get to hear from women like this very often, you know, even now, you know, I'm very excited about the story and I I love to tell it, but you know, we're still talking about um, two men talking about this story. You know, we have no idea. I don't know who these women's name, what these women's names are. I don't know anything about them. And, you know, I'm looking like, I really want to hear more from them. So Mm. we have to kind of like, look where we can define ordinary women in the past just because it takes so much i mean i love programs like this because i love um talking about how all the amazing women there have been over the years but it just kind of sucks that sometimes in order to be in the record at all you have to be amazing you know it's it's like uh, we were talking about earlier it's like why can't you know why can't we just know more about women who are ordinary and it's not our fault it's just like you know the way that history works because we can only have what's written down and unfortunately we don't get to hear from ordinary people because of that you know absolutely Holmes are you on the home base website ordering a fuck shack for the back garden yes <laughs> well, I written down, but I've written down being cute unfortunately okay. <laughs> <laughs> great minds and all that um yeah, I've basically got fuck all to say now. <laughs> oh, was that, sorry, was that going to be your big joke? Yeah, how was my way in? Um, <laughs> no, yeah. No, I, I, I haven't got any questions, but I think, um, I mean, it's, 
great that the sex workers brought the case, but I think actually well done to the judge for deciding in their favour as well. Yeah. And the state actually doing it. And it, while you were speaking, it reminded me um, of the approach to brothels by the British Army on the Western Front in the First World War, where they basically decided that sex workers performed a good service and it was uh, valuable for morale uh, to the extent where doctors from the Royal Army Medical Corps went round and examined the sex workers and gave them a clean bill of health and everything. And all this was going on, but they had very strict rules saying, we cannot write about this back to the war office. Whatever, this has to stay here in France. You know, They don't need to know about it at home. We, we can cut the risk of that happening by just not writing back to back to London and telling anyone about this, or even mm-hmm. minuting it in any way, shape or form. And it's interesting that many hundreds of years beforehand in Prague, the state was prepared to back this and not try and sweep it under the carpet in a way that the British Army sort of did, you know, 400 odd years later. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that is so, um, in many ways, it's a, a really kind of interesting lesson about how a lot of the time when we think about history, we always think about things, you know, we want to say, oh, well, the history is a story of progress. History is a story of uh, things get better and they're always moving towards a better point. But that's not necessarily how it works if we look at, at for example, at the treatment of sex workers, where like, that, that's a really, uh, you know, great example uh, from World War One, And it's like, well, why can't we just say, oh, yeah, well, this actually does better as a community it's good for morale here's the things that it's doing for these women who have very few you know options in terms of work right now and you know there there are interesting lessons from you know these particularly marginalized communities because it means it's good for us to kind of think about history not necessarily as a straight line towards something that uh we approve of or that we think is better or that we think is um necessarily you know quote-unquote progressive I just have to tell all of our listeners as well, you can't see her, none of us can see her right now, but Eleanor's lipstick is kicking ass it's really right good. now. It is yeah. good. Thank you. Thank she you. did go and put her lipstick on and then the I bandwidth did. went to shit and we all went to audio only, but we're all respecting the lipstick. Um, Thank Emily you. and John, we will put the video on before we hang up so you can respect the you lipstick. Can, yeah, you can see the lipstick. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. Okay, uh, while Johnny and Andrew are frantically trying to define in their own heads what badass should mean and are probably on WhatsApp to each other trying to figure it out, I mean, do what I usually do and go around the pub and ask people, if you can't have your woman that you argued for, who's won your vote? So let's start with Claire. Oh, me first again. <laughs> I just figure you've been sitting there so quietly all this time. <laughs> have you had fun, though? I've had so much fun. Thank you ever so much for inviting me on. Well, um, your argument was brilliant. Um, <laughs> if you can't have Lady Rhonda, who do you think? I honestly think the sex workers of Prague. Yeah, I'm <laughs> loving them. <laughs> yeah. It's like we're all talking about female individuals and they're all absolutely amazing in their own right. But one of the things I love about being a female and having female friends is female solidarity and females supporting each other. And this is a great example of females, you know, coming together to fight the, the patriarchy in the very basis of terms. Yeah. And, uh, and to have the snivelling little priest scuttling <laughs> away like the rat that he is, basically. Um, you know, having... the, the sisterhood is real, baby. The sisterhood's real. Yeah, and just, just the history of sex in general is just such a an underappreciated historical area of study. So just to learn more about it, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Alina. Why do I have to go next? Because I said so. <laughs> Stuart's just old. 
Uh, I'm going to go ancient history. I'm going to go for Flavia. Octavia, Octavia, do you mean? <laughs> so that's How the much one, yeah. Vodka have you <laughs> but do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? I'm really sorry. I'm going to ruin the mood. I've been talking to my uncle about family issues. So. Uh, okay. Oh. How? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you would go with Octavia um, doing everything within the bounds of the societal structure that she was given. Yeah. Uh, what about Emily? I have to agree, definitely Octavia, because as she was saying it, I, I felt this like guilt inside because <laughs> research Cleopatra so much, and you know, it was almost a footnote in the back of my mind to actually hear her story. Um, yeah, because you have you spoke, uh, you and your dad spoke about uh, Cleopatra quite extensively on episode two as one of your war queens, um, mm-hmm. and now you feel bad because the other woman was at home. <laughs> <laughs> you now know all about her. So well done, Emma, for the guilt trip. <laughs> John, what about you? You know, I got to go with the uh, Prague sex workers. And, yes, uh, you know, ladies. Part, and, and, and part of it, it, it's not just that they were able to turn out a uh, pompous priest who, you know, although we don't know in the record, he probably ended up dying of a blood clot in his right hand. Yes. But <laughs> they, they actually proved that you're just not going to get that far. You're, you're, you're not going to get that far by by trying to go against human nature. And where there's a product that uh, that people want, um, don't try to fight the system. Uh, New York one time tried to ban uh, giant uh, soda uh, soda cups. Uh, if somebody came around here and told me they were going to ban hamburgers, damn it, if I wouldn't get up in arms too. So I, I but props to the. Uh, Props to the sex workers, not only for standing up to one element of power, but using another element of power, which is human nature and then the legal system, uh, to counter it. Um, I just want to say that I uh, want to chime in with some props for how American uh, uprising over hamburgers would be. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Emma, what about you? I'm torn between the... um, Prague sex workers and Alina's friend's grandmother. Um, but I think I'm going to go with Alina's friend's grandmother. Yeah, I think she for going into war for being so, an yeah. ordinary woman reacting incredibly well to some real shit circumstances. To Absolutely, really understate the situation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to put it yeah. in a nutshell. Real yeah. bad. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can hear her saying thank you. So excellent. Eleanor, what about you? Um, I'm also going in on Team Alina's friend's grandmother, um, mostly because I'm afraid that she might find me and kick my ass if I say <laughs> yeah. uh, something else. Um, but I think, a, you know, uh, as a, a person of a Czech extraction, you know, um, this is a sort of thing that is a very near and dear to my heart. And, you know, my uh, my family uh, ended up in the States because of World War II and, uh, you know, all of the unpleasantness that surrounds it. So, um you know, it's just that we kind of managed to get the right side of the jump and get out of there before all the genocide started happening. But um, so for me, these, uh, you know, I think they, they are for everyone, really. But these stories are so immediate and it's very much uh, a there. But for the grace of God, go I, you know, it could have been mine, Anna. Um, and uh, also mine, Anna, was pretty <laughs> formidable. So, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past her. But um, I do 
think that it is one of those things, as we were saying, when we think about what makes um, a real badass and is it just reacting to your situation in the best way that you can or is it creating situations? And I like seeing ordinary people go in there and do incredible things. It just... Um, you know, it's heartwarming and also, you know, reminds me of my Nana. So what yeah, am I going to do? Yeah, for Nana's everywhere. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, mm, I think I am going to go with the Prague sex workers, though, because I just, I like the idea of them all just marching on the town hall. You're just like an upset priest. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I like the idea of the priest uh, <laughs> right, being run out of town, like the snivelling little git bag that he evidently was. Uh, guys, right, have you made a decision? Are we ready? Yeah, I think All right, there. Johnny, you go first. Um, I mean, in the first instance, just a, an absolutely fascinating array of candidates in the sense that I suspect that if people look at the the idea of the podcast and what, what, what we're talking about, they'd expect... Joan of Arc, they'd expect Boudicca, they'd expect Queen Victoria, and you just get an awful lot more when you're not sort of going for the obvious, and there's just sort of half a dozen things I've heard about that I just want to read more about, and more specifically I've got a 12 year old daughter who has been coming out of school since kind of you know six years of age, moaning that the boys are not letting her play football and the rest of it and we've been trying to sort of teach her about not taking shit and learning about powerful women. Um, I wanted to read about all of these. But yeah, probably wait about five years before you let her I, Yeah, we, we'll leave the sex workers for a little a bit later. In this podcast. Um, <laughs> okay. But the one I wanted to read about most is Lady Rhonda. So yeah. she, as for me, just the breadth of her experience um, absolutely blew me away. I think it's an amazing, an amazing story. Oh, well done, Claire. Uh, right, let's see if Holmes agrees. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, it's it's interesting. I thought there were, would have been other, you know, candidates coming up from history, from people like Elizabeth I to uh, Mrs. Slocum from Are You Being Served, that type of thing. <laughs> and Beyonce. I almost Beyonce. did it. I almost did it. Um, I mean, if I look at my little brief notes, Octavia I had down as being, being probably being too nice. <laughs> Nazinga and Katerina I had down, they, they had real struggles and, and displayed, you know, badassery, but they probably came from a reasonably privileged background. Um, Alina's friend, Alina's um, grandmother's friend, who I think was called Helena, wasn't she? I just, I didn't know if I was just getting the names mixed up. Yeah. Um, that was a phenomenally powerful story. But as you said yourself, you know, she wasn't the only woman who was involved in anything like that during the uprising. Um, so unfortunately, I didn't, I didn't go for her, although that came close. The, the Prague sex work was, was great, but in anything, if anything, the judge that found for them at the court slightly diminished. Their case, I think, in my mind, although it shows a far more progressive society. Oh, yeah, I, I, I see that, yeah. <laughs> another struggle than another struggle, but they sort of got, the, they won their case almost straight away. So I think it has to be Lady Rhonda as well, who had slightly more than all the others. And, you know, there's a mixture of rebellion, leadership, empathy, and then it led on into sort of culture as well. I just think she ticks slightly more boxes. And also, so what you're saying is if the Prague sex workers had burnt down the courthouse afterwards, then you would have given them your vote. I think so. If they got their husbands... <laughs> Holmes is asking for anarchy. Money. That's yeah. what yeah. he is asking for. <laughs> and, you know, to be fair, um, I can't fault him. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so Lady Rhonda it is. Oh, I've now, well, how many cocktails behind am I now? Because I have to do one for each winner. So I, I still owe a honey-based Alexander the Great one. Uh, what was last week's? Battles. Battles. What battle won in the end? 
Hastings, a Battle of Hastings yeah. cocktail, and uh, now a Lady Rhonda cocktail. Maybe we'll start muddling daffodils um, at the bottom <laughs> of the glass before we make it. Uh, Claire, well done. Thank you. I'm, yes, indeed. Well done. <laughs> Are you slightly, slightly tempted to break out into Men of Harlick or something really well now? <laughs> No, I just like, I'm obviously, I was so honoured to be invited to come on here in the first place to speak to some people who I really, really admire. And I never in a million years thought that my choice would, would win. So. Never I, thought you'd destroy them all. <laughs> <laughs> but Combined no, I, with the wine I've, I've drunk tonight, it's making me quite emotional. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, well done. Uh, join us tomorrow, uh, where you can hear lots more from Eleanor because, uh, she did a Q&A with us last week about medieval women um, and you guys did not hold back with your questions as we have previously alluded to. There's lots of social stuff in there. What we liked was that you didn't just blanket her with questions about famous medieval women. What you basically asked her to do is tell you more about how women lived in the medieval period uh, including their sex toys which is discussed at length um, and very academically and properly. Get it, Link. Yeah, let's start. You see what I did? Lowering the town, baby. Lowering <laughs> the town. I do it without even thinking now. I've been hanging around with Holmes too long. I didn't even swear till I met those two. Um, Honest. And then <laughs> on, we will also be bringing you, uh, I've just this moment decided to switch our schedule around. We will also be bringing you oral history tomorrow um, from a very exceptional lady. Uh, you may say that she hasn't lived a, a particularly uh, famous life, but what she has lived is a life of service that includes the Peace Corps, uh, volunteering with the reserves to go to Iraq, Um and things weren't always good. And she talks to us about how she overcame that and how she still carried on being a community nurse and how even now in her later years, she still wants to help people. Um, it's quite an inspiring story. So uh, you can tune in tomorrow morning to hear from Susan Luz. Sunday is the return of the boys from Sharp. It's Sharp's reunion part two. We have all five of the chosen men uh answering your questions, singing, abusing each other quite heftily and talking about their favourite moments from filming. And we have Napoleonic historians back with us as well to try and bring some order to proceedings. So get in, uh, get listening to all of that. And until then, thank you guys for coming tonight and uh, for all of your contributions. It's been epic. A pleasure, so as always. No, thanks so much. Thanks, I think we literally uh, have to have more girls' nights on this uh, yeah. more often um, if Holmes and Johnny can take it. I think I'm slightly terrified tonight, if I'm honest. I'm happy to be called Gwendolyn for the evening. It's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> there now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.